0: Ladies and gentlemen, Judgment Day is finally upon us here on the Rogue Retro SmackDown review. We are here to look at a pay-per-view as the main event that goes one hour. And if this podcast could go only one hour long, how cool would that be? Eh? Just for just for a change, some weeks, you know, just for a, just for nice.
1: Let's be honest. This podcast is like uh, an all-night-long special. This is like Monday Night War, but hopefully with actual entertainment.
0: I keep stressing to to Stanley, this will not be a two-part. This will not not be a two-part thing. <laughs> I do not want to get into the habit of doing that for WrestleMania and the Big Four. Like we've done it for Rumble and for WrestleMania. That's fine and fair enough. Even with the RMM match, I I do not want to. Find justification to spread this into two parts, and I act like, and I act like you're the problem. I on my other podcast, got on Balls Rattling Podcast, not called that because he and I go off topic all the time. We just did a Royal Rumble 1993 review that was ten minutes shy of going three hours. <laughs> so it's not, as if, so it's not as if you're the common denominator here. <laughs>
1: I'm going to start adding up and start thinking to myself, hmm, what seems to be the issue that occurs every time? Imagine if all three of us did it. Can you imagine? That would be like a six-hour WrestleMania extravaganza for a UK Rebellion pay-per-view. It would be (laughs) insane. you will just be sat there clawing your eyes out going, please just let me escape. (laughs) (laughs) I
0: mean, that would be based on you, even being willing to watch a UK pay per view at all because you build so many loopholes just to get out of insurrection.
1: To to be fair, I'm usually more than open to discussing about any insurrection, but unfortunately, <laughs> uh, when it comes to WWF pay per views, my contract stipulates I do not deal with the UK ship.
0: It was a big shock to me, basically, I didn't realize we did contracts here. I've been here uh, since the beginning.
1: I I've got a better agent, sorry. I've I've got Mark Sterling as my agent, evidently, and you've probably got the uh really crap guy from Entourage.
0: I've got 2005 Tommaso Ciampa when he popped off as Mahama <laughs> Sands lawyer and I was smackdown. We'll cover that one day in about twenty years. But yeah. <laughs> I'm Scott McLeod, that's time of press, in case you didn't know already. But we'll get into judgment day uh shortly. But Sam... Um, do you think you know
1: me? I feel like there's got to be enough people out there that will scream in celebration at any time you say, do you know me? Do you think you know me?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a rhetorical question because I'm going <laughs> to tell you. Uh, I have been called many things. Some of them accurate, some of them not. Most of them accurate. But one thing I like to think that I am is a man of my word. Even though I may not do them in the time fashion that you want me to do things, it doesn't mean I won't do a thing that you asked me to do. With that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, in as much detail as I see fit, here are the top eight reasons that Steve Blackman is better than Kane.
1: Yes! Yes! Oh, I need to put Steve Blackman's theme song on in the background for this one. Um, of course, it might require I me didn't. to actually. I, it might require me to actually find a theme song for him. But the time is now. I am prepared. Do what you wish. I'm, sta- I'm standing up and just saying that
0: I was doing this. I felt a weird shakiness like my legs were going to collapse out from under me, like when the McMahon took that stunner back at WrestleMania. <laughs>
1: I mean, to to be fair, you've probably taken as long to create this as he did to actually respond to the stunner.
0: <laughs> I'll go. Eight reasons. Number one, he's, he had a more entertaining tag team with Al Snow. He has some background. Kane, then known as the Unabomber back in 1995, formed a tag team with Al Snow in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. They at one point <laughs> even won the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Championships. I can't remember their tag team name because, really, as, as I just said, despite winning the tag team titles, they're clearly very forgettable as a tag team. Whereas we all know about Head Cheese. And yeah, maybe they didn't win at WrestleMania 2000. Yeah, maybe they weren't tag team champions. But how many iconic tag teams are there out there that haven't won tag team championships? But we know them. We remember their names, even all these years later, just because they were so entertaining. Would Kane do a segment with Al Snow? where he hits a cow with a set of brass nuts or threatens to assault a woman who's heckling his stand-up material and have it with comedic moments that will last a lifetime, no he would not. So that is reason numero uno. Number two, his t- TV and film career is much better than Kane's. So as you know, Kane is starred in such classics as McGrupper as an unnamed character. As Jacob Goodnight in two very forgettable horror slasher films, and as the police captain in WWE Countdown starring Dolph Ziggler. I didn't even watch that one. Uh, All of these are very forgettable and go right into the nearest bargain bin at your local video store, if they still have those. Where Steve Blackman only has one proper credit to his name it was an unpicked up pilot for Blackman's Bonds, talking about his now real life career as a bail bondsman. And already, and that one episode, could you see his more acting and leading man charisma from Steve Blackman than you could ever see from Mr. Jacobs. And the fact that that show wasn't even picked up shows is how unappreciated in his own time, Steve Blackman is. So this was 10 years later, that would have been picked up, we'd have been on Series 13 by now.
1: It's like the Firefly of wrestling documentaries.
0: Amen. Number three, he's a better hardcore champion. C. Blackman has actually the most combined days across six reigns as Hardcore Champion. His longest reign going almost 80 days in the summer of 2000. We'll get to that very soon. Kane, on the other hand, only has one reign as Hardcore Champion, albeit in a memorable match at WrestleMania 17 where he won it. But he only held onto that belt for a measly 16 days before losing it to Rhino. He couldn't even hold on to it for more than three weeks. And he's maybe one of the most intimidating guys in the locker room. Whereas Steve Blackman, we remember Steve Blackman as hardcore champion. He gave us such iconic moments as knocking Shane off the Titan Tron SummerSlam. So just for that alone, and his multiple reigns and the accumulated days that it did up to, we remember Steve Blackman as hardcore champion. These, uh, these two next two reasons are kind of, they're kind of merged into one, but I'll say them separately. Number four, he has practically no social media presence. Now, Steve Blackman is a private man. He doesn't, you know, opinions. he's not like many of us out there who need to get the first thought out of their brain and onto social media, onto Twitter, onto Facebook, onto Instagram. Whereas Mr. Jacobs has several Twitter both as Kane and as himself, which leads into reason number five. He keeps his opinions about maths to himself. One of the biggest mistakes I ever made was following Glenn Jacobs on social media. <laughs> so can get a first-hand glimpse at his policies and his opinions on things like masks. But the great thing about Steve Blackman is he could also be very anti-mask. He could be very, very anti-government. He could have very offensive opinions, but we wouldn't know that because he did the smart thing and keeps it to his fucking self and doesn't spread it across social media because he doesn't feel a need to. So we should all be more like Steve Blackman in that sense. Keeping uh, me that theme, number six, he never wrote a book. I would buy a Steve Blackman book I also got bought a Kenyan book, the last third of which is one of the most boring and tedious things I've ever read, because it's him trying to compare wrestling and politics in a fun way, to make it more interesting, like a dad trying to explain a thing that he thinks is cool that will never be cool. Uh, Steve Blackman did not feel the need to borrow a book about politics, even though if he reads the book, it would definitely be a bestseller. Number seven, this is a legit reason here, uh, he survived malaria. But yet, Steve Blackman in 1989 suffered malaria and dysentery on a tour of South Africa, which left him hospitalised for numerous years, really halted his wrestling career and set him back a bit because he had to rebuild up the muscle mass that he lost. He was a death threat, it seemed like at one point. So the fact that he can come back from near death, but Glenn Jacobs can't put on a mask, it keeps going on about a cave fire that happened to him all these years ago and still doesn't get over it. Where Steve Blackman doesn't talk about the fact he nearly died, he just gets on with his life another reason why he's better than Kane and finally number 8 and probably the most important reason is that if the two ever met and got into a legit fight Steve Blackman could probably beat the shit out of Kane
1: I don't think there's any probably about it but yes 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 what an awesome list thank you I'm sure that wasn't painful at all for you
0: I need to go for a shower when this is
1: done (laughs) Uh, To wash off the stink of uh, being a Glenn Jacobs fan.
0: I'm not a Glenn Jacobs fan. I am a Kane fan. There's a big difference. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, so you wouldn't mind if, uh, was it like, uh, not Otis or something like that, was it? Who was the, uh, Luke Gallos? Didn't he play Kane at one point? Yeah. So technically you could be a fan of Luke Gallos? I'm also not a fan of Luke
0: Gallos. I think he is. I'm I'm okay with Carl Anderson, but Luke Gallows is one of the most insufferable people I've ever seen in modern wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Why? What What did he do to upset you so much? He keeps swinging the impact tag titles between his between his legs like it's a, like it's a knob. Like they, he and Carl Anderson complained about the whole testicle and ring postitis angle and everything. Like, no, we don't like it when they make us make jokes about testicles. But then we'll do a podcast where we make nothing but testicle jokes.
1: <laughs> oh, well, to be fair, their wrestling is usually bollocks, so I think it's very apropos.
0: Looking, Phil Anderson likes to call Luke Gallows the best big man in wrestling. I could think of at least 20 big men that are better and probably more mobile
1: than Luke Gallows. I'm pretty sure that 90% of the time Luke Gallows isn't even the best big man in their fucking matches. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He's not even the best big man fucking billet club.
1: No, he's really not. He's really not. Uh, and I think especially, I'll tell you what, watching impact recently, you, you compare like how annoying Doc Gallows is and how brilliantly I legitimately think that they have done with W Morrissey, where that is a proper big man, um, like built like a brick shit house, fantastic height and it's just got this aura about him all of a sudden and it's really surprising considering that when he entered Impact he would have had nowhere near as much uh momentum behind him as Doc Gallos would have had when he first joined and yeah I would definitely say that between the two of them um uh W morrissey is the much better big man and that's not even taking into account like say Jonah for instance, in Impact, mm. who is fantastic. And I still think his match with uh, Josh Alexander is a underrated cracker. I thought that was fantastic. They just beat the shit out of each other, basically. And it was great.
0: Oh. say think we're talking about Kane as well at the start there, because Kane's on the poster for this, not on the show. You know, Bruce Prichard likes to talk about how they used to have to make these posters very far in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kane's not on the poster, but wow. apparently, if you zoom in on the eye uh, of Kane in the poster, because you know the eyes are the window to the soul, yeah. Uh, apparently, you can see the Undertaker's cross symbol in his eye. What could that be foreshadowing? <gasps> oh,
1: very interesting. I'm gonna have to go look at this now. I'm gonna have to see whether this is true. I mean, if it's not in the middle of the um of this podcast, I'm just gonna go, Scott, you lied to me. And you're You've just done gonna work go, to me. That That is true. I've done many bad things to so. you. Oh my god, it does have the cross, actually. Oh my god, that's almost subtle and intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, thank
1: you.
0: Uh, we were meant to be joined by Nathan Greenaway and a revolving door of like, having a third person to maybe try and balance out this weird act we've got going between me and Sam, but, you know, having Nathan on uh, scheduling-wise, we, this was the, today that we are recording this was the only other day we could record this, and unfortunately, due to people in his work, getting, coming down with COVID and having to go home and isolate, Nathan has had to, you know, be, put on his boots, be a working man, so, you know, good for him and everything. It's like a beer for Nathan the working man, if I had any beer.
1: Nathan the working man, who would rather uh deal with COVID, then do a podcast with us. Uh I obviously don't take that personally at all. Yeah. Little rat no, bastard. I,
0: I think it's I think it's completely understandable. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, hmm, get, get paid for overtime here, and be responsible and you know, win over points with my employers, or sit and listen to these two idiots ramble about wrestling that happened over twenty two years ago for three hours potentially. Hmm. I think he makes the, a smart choice.
1: the difference is, is that one of those he could be sat there in just his boxers at home. Now, whether that's t- listening to us or in his workplace, only HR knows. But <laughs> there is a distinct possibility he could just sit there in his boxers. Oh, maybe not even that, depending on uh, how free he's feeling, how warm it is, wherever he's from.
0: He, he does. He does host a podcast called the Naked Man Podcast, so that will give you an insight into his provocations. But less about Nathan, more about Judgment Day. It took place May 21st, 2000 from the, from Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, obviously, has a lot of wrestling history at this time. Uh, OVW still going, producing what will be the next the next few big stars in, to, from 2002 onwards and producing some guys in the mid-2000s who we'd sooner forget. And OVW, not affiliated with uh, WWE as a development, but still going as its own thing today. But the attendance was 16,827 people, grossing over $596,050 in ticket sales with a buy rate of 420,000 for a B pay per view and like the old mid spring and what is today referred to as a dead period for WAE, but not in the year 2000, it isn't. Uh, We have the opening package, which tells you about all the different things that can happen in an hour. How many babies will be born? How many passengers will get on? How many planes? And a certain amount of time. How they found all these facts and who they got to fact check these is beyond me. They also said you will think about sex 21 times, so between the two of us I assume that Sam and I will think about sex 84 times, at least.
1: I reckon so, definitely. I mean, if... uh if it was just one of us we would think about it enough to be the answer to the life the universe and everything um i'm pretty sure that's really how douglas adams came up with the answer
0: but <laughs> well, then it flips into clips from the rock and trouble H's career and the times they've came across each other and then just talking about beating the phrase one hour uh throughout the promo package There's a lot of stuff that we've heard on smackdown leading into this and basically it's proving that they would be the best and everything and then Pyro, everything going off the stage is just a, bunch of, just a bunch of fencing, really, when you think about it. Not really anything too fancy. And then we, we go from that promo package and the explosions of the Pyro. The crowd are all hot. Signs are plenty everywhere. JR and the King welcoming us to the arena. And how do you kick off? How do you follow up all that? The excitement keeping the crowd hot? We cut backstage. Immediately cut backstage. Is this <laughs> Judgment Day or an episode of Raw? I thought did the Sunday night heat overrun somehow. Did the was there a miscue with the people in charge of that? Did they set it off right in the last few minutes of Sunday night heat? <laughs> this is going on <laughs> because like they're running. Mends is running through what all the regime members are going to be doing, uh, and they've got a big plate of hummus and vegetables on the table. The only person eating it is X X-Pac, for some reason. Uh, you got to you know look, get up before his big match, apparently. Can't kind of put some through the table on it to something. And Vince is going through all the matches. They're going to have, like, basically like, trying to tell you, run down what's going to go on later on. Like, I, yes, by the fact this is the year 2000, i bought the pay-per-view. I know what's going to happen because I watched SmackDown when you've done similar promos, telling me about who the regime are going to fight. And then we have Joe uh, Briscoe. He's running late. Well, I love it, Briscoe. He's got his suit on the Hardcore champ- championship is around his waist, and he's trying to explain how he didn't why he was late. But Vince cuts him off, and then they all just give up, give him their, their coffee order. And then he buggers off, only to be attacked by the headbangers. <laughs> to which, at least to these, this line here, line from Gerald Lawler, which then GR brilliantly responds to, goes, What about the coffee? Coffee, he's fighting for his life here. <laughs>
1: Uh, If you had any idea of what Lawler was going to be like tonight, that instantly gave you an indication. There's no care for any human being apart from Vince McMahon. Uh, Jerry Lawler is going to be in complete shill mode today.
0: You know, I actually have some compliments for Jerry Lawler when we get to the main event, but the main event is a long ways away. So, uh, after those two weird segments, uh, which sets up a running theme throughout the show, because there are a lot more backstage segments on this pay-per-view than you'd ever expect there to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, We cut to the ring for our opening contest. It's a six-man tag team match. Uh, Team Eck as they're commonly known nowadays, taking on two-kill. Kurt Angle comes out first by himself. And uh, I love his his little promo. He's got a microphone with him, as he always (laughs) does. And he says, you know, since powering up with Edge and Christian, your Olympic hero, it's suddenly gotten a lot of attention from teenage girls apparently your olympic hero is and i quote and he does a big quotation marks all that <laughs> just like such a dad where he's talking how uncool he is and he even throws down a little rhyme for us he says you know i want to give a message to all the young girls in the audience you know don't be like all the people here sleeping with a lot of guys be like me be abstinent and follow my three eyes <laughs>
1: Uh, I, he's, he may be the only man who can get away with being that goofy and yet go on to be a legitimate badass. So I just... But I, I'm really looking forward to the start of this, I have to admit. I'm thinking if you're going to start, off, start with some of your best workers. And to be fair, if you've got Kurt Angle coming out and he's just one of six individuals, you're going to hopefully have something good going on. But you also notice as soon as Edging Christian's music comes up, comes on, Angle is right, all you can hear is high-pitched screaming. <laughs> so, I, I was like, ah, damn it, Kurt is actually right here. As someone who's watched a lot of mid-90s stuff
0: for WBS, stuff for uh, my other podcast, Got involved around Realm podcast, it's the exact same high-pitched sound you hear whenever Shawn Michaels used to come out, you know. Uh, but I love how Adrian Christian managed to get everybody, including the high-pitched teenage girls, against them. Because as soon as Christian opens his mouth, he goes, we want to thank all our fans here in Louisville. <laughs> when you think about it, he's saying it grammatically correct, the way it's spelled. Mm-hmm. And then they unveil, on the first for the first time on pay-per-view, for the benefit of those with flash photography, a five-second pose talking about not, <laughs> Louisville, Kentucky's greatest cultural achievement, the Jug Band, with a tail on funny hats and Edge has got some buck teeth on. But I think JR takes a piss out of it saying, those are bigger than his usual teeth. <laughs> And then they do the five second pose to which edge goes with his teeth still in all be all he enjoyed it <laughs> and then something that i love rediscovering as you go back into 2000 is how over to cool are because they're mostly a great opening card act because so i'll say people are booing that literally the minute the opening riff of their music hits like they get one of the i think it's fair to say rather, other than the rock maybe they get one of the loudest pops of the night
1: I think you're right. Yeah. You can, like, they are hugely popular. You can hear it as soon as they come out that everyone's completely into them. And I did, I did kind of love to some degrees that you have two cool dancing like 10 feet in front of Rikishi. And it's almost like Rikishi just went, you know, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up. I'll catch up. <laughs> so that when he comes out, he gets more attention. And that's all. But um, you either always open up a pay per view with, some of your best workers or your most overworkers. And here they're doing both, which is very clever. So, um, even though the tag team titles aren't being defended on the pay per view, I think this is a really good replacement. And I, uh, the only thing that was probably a little bit distracted in regards to it is I don't know about you, but Edge's green tights made him, shall we say, <laughs> more noticeable than usual. <laughs>
0: I can't say I was I can't say I was looking in that direction. No, I was just laughing at the fact that even while Tukul were in the and made their way into the right, cuts the outside, Edge still has not taken the buck teeth out. <laughs> part of me wants him just to wrestle the whole match with that and then get like get them kicked out of his mouth when like Rikushi super kicks him or something like that. <laughs> I just wanna see how far he could take it.
1: <laughs> uh, if if he could, uh, that would be if he was teaming with Kane uh, as Isaac Yankum. The two of them could work together and just have a skit where uh, Isaac yanks out the teeth, and that would be perfect. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, the heels do try and get a jump on the baby faces of it backfires. The faces send them scurrying to the outside. Uh, when well, the match probably gets going, it's Edge and Grandmaster take to get going. Despite Edge and Christian being the tag champs, whenever scotty or grandmaster in there they do get made to look like like good like good. Cool. they do make grandmaster and scotty joy look good like next to the tag jammies it does seem like in the next few weeks there these guys get their, their first proper go at you know going after the Titan titles of the phase which is understandable given the reaction that they got uh edge pokes grandmaster in the eye uh then scotty and christian Kevin have a good fat back and forth sequence Grandmaster, there's a, there's a cool spot here where Grandmaster blocks the corner by line across it when Scotty's going to get thrown into it to make sure he doesn't take any damage and then Christian's going to get blown in the corner Edge goes up to that same corner to try and do the same protect him, Scotty sees it stops and throws him back into the opposite corner
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did like that actually, that was a nice little bit, um The pacing is really impressive, though, how quickly they're going from set piece to set piece. This is like someone's just put the ignition to a thousand and just went straight through it, which kicking off with the hot crowd very quickly chewing on, not just too cool, but huge chance for Rikishi. He especially was massively over. Too cool were over, but he was even more so without question.
0: Mm. not as if they were like they were saving him because like he couldn't like be like wrestle be in the ring for long periods of time. Like they knew that Rikishi is over Scotty to hot and grass with the in terms of the dance and everything, and they could go uh, Rikishi is somebody who you can have he's built for in this team for making the hot tide to see start off with Grandmaster and Scotty, then one of the two of them gets worked over, and they they're good at selling the work over, and then they. You build up anticipation for the big man coming in because you know the big man is going to just clear house as soon as he gets in. Mm. Uh, fans are. I mean, I noticed uh, at one point, just randomly happens. Uh, Grandmaster's in the ring, his pants fall down, and I don't think they were meant to fall down. <laughs> so you just see his underpants there, and Scotty is just l- openly laughing and pointing at him, joking that he potentially has a small dick. And then <laughs> he just. I think the, the big indication that it's not made to happen is that, obviously, Akishi. It's meant to be the series one of the group and then they get him to dance at the end where you know they make him reluctantly put the glass on and that gets him to dance you notice Fikishi is leaning on the turnbuckle pad where we are and he's with his arm over his face, clearly trying to hide the fact that he can't hold back his laughter.
1: Oh, he can pop in the Completely corpsed. He was not. He was He was not expecting it. And Grandmaster's just like trying to act like, oh yeah, that was totally meant to be. And Scott's like, yeah, whatever, Michael penis. So <laughs> it was just Sorry. so random.
0: Scott and grandmaster handled it very well because Scott openly laughed at it. And grandmaster, the theorem was the perfect one for it to happen to because he was a good guy. They meant to think the grandmaster was a bit of a numpty, uh, a bit nicely. So he just kind of laughs it off. Uh, I think this is the... Maybe I've not noticed it before now, but when Scottie does the worm, this the first thing i probably noticed the fans all... I'd I hear Lawler doing it bad. This the first time i probably heard the fans chanting along the W-O-R. And then Kurt Angle becomes the biggest heel in Kentucky by having the goal, the unmitigated goal, to cut off the worm, just some of the loudest boos of the night for <laughs> cutting off the the weirdest and slash most ineffective finishing move of all time. <laughs> uh,
1: it, it, uh, well, um, it is weird, however, that this they're finally getting some heat on Scotty, um, mm. considering that the majority of the match so far has been the faces on top, to the point that you mentioned about a hot tag for Rikishi. Um, and when the fans were cheering really loudly for him, and it seemed perfect to start building up to the hot tag you get one little attack on grandmaster and it's almost like he goes nah i don't sell and there's just tags for in, and the fans almost missed it i almost missed it watching um so even though kurt angle makes himself the biggest heel possibly of the night just by interrupting the worm this crowd to be honest was so hot they would have cheered the uh, uh, opening of an envelope um which just makes it even more confusing that they didn't build a little bit more work to an, to a massive hot tag for Rikishi.
0: Well, I think they were they only had a certain amount of time because like 10, 11 minutes is long as any of the undercard matches go. Because I believe it's two hours forty-eight. This entire card goes, and obviously you've got an Iron Man match at the end, so you've got like an hour and a half for everything else. But I still think one or two matches could have gotten a little bit extra time. Uh, not all of them, some of them do get the appropriate number of time, but some of them probably could have done with a few minutes more. The uh, like that Kurt does eventually get the stink face, which gets a big reaction. I was having this argument with, well not argument. but I had this discussion with Paul on the uh, Royal Rumble 93 review and we kind of differed. He asked me which would you rather take? The stink face from Kishu or the nasty Boys' petty city? And I instantly said the stink face, whereas he says You'd rather take
1: the pity, say. Well, the difference is, is that I think Rikishi actually um, appreciates hygiene and mm. will actually clean himself in between. Like, I remember reading an article once where he, uh, someone said to him, like, how many fongs do you basically have for it? And he said, I have three fongs that I use. I have one that I clean every day. I have one that I clean every other day. And I have one that I rarely clean and keep for the people I don't like. Uh, so <laughs> as long as Rikishi likes you, you have a chance that he will have a very clean, um, hygienically perfect bottom ready to rub in your face. Whereas I'm pretty sure the Nasty Boys, the closest they've ever used the deodorant is as a weapon in a street fight. Um, mm-hmm. They probably uh, clean themselves up about as much as... the. Uh, like a disgusting pig wood. So I would gladly go for the stink face as opposed to the pits.
0: Yeah, plus I said like I said uh, I said that like we you, you should probably take care of you as long as you like to. And if mm. yes, I know it's an arse, big arse in your face, but like he's at least got a little bit of thumb to protect to avoid anything in the middle getting too close to you. And whereas with the, the acid wise, there's just no protection, that's just pure, no protection from BO or sweat or anything. That's just all up in your face. And you know, neither of them last particularly long. i still might rather get the, the stink face than, than the pit city. So it's not even a debate as far as I'm concerned.
1: I agree. I am 100% backing you up on that one stink face over pit city.
0: Uh, Rikishi does get knocked down finally by the the ring bell. That's seemingly become Edge and Christian's main weapon at this point. And there's a big scuffle with Scotty and Christian, and everything. Where so the referee's attracted. Edge scratches the pin on, uh Grandmaster hits the hip hop drop, rolls him over, and Rikishi makes the pin. And Kurt looks like he's just like he might have got there in time, but referee says no. Three, two, won cool one in nine forty-seven. Now this, like. Really confused me for a second because I'm wondering was Kurt meant to break up or was that a case of he was meant to look like he was going to break up but get there just a second too late? But maybe Kurt rushed there and got there sooner than he was meant to. So, did the finish was the finish of watch or did it just look like one? It really confused me. And, even, and it confused me even more the fact that I've already watched the post Judgment Day Raw and, and these teams have a rematch on Raw.
1: See that's very strange then, because normally you don't have a rematch if the uh, if there was if there was a botch in the original match, unless it's you know modern day WWE, in which case they'll have a rematch if someone accidentally uh, ate their sandwich. Um, it's a very strange finish, a uh, very weirdly either either weirdly planned or miscued, and I don't know whether theodore long should have gone ahead and still counted the pin or whether he should have gone with the momentum and allow it to be saved i don't it's a very is a very strange one in that situation i'm also kind of curious about the idea of what it would be like if uh, edging christians weapons had become the ring bell as opposed to chairs and you would have um uh, table ladders ring bell Uh, but I don't think TLR really has the same (laughs) thing to it, really. Um, but, um, I, I, even though I found some of the booking of this match quite weird, like the, there doesn't really seem to be a proper build up to a hot tag. There doesn't seem to be much where the heels get heat. They don't have much of a B facing peril, um, to all degrees and purposes, the faces come over, go across really strongly. The fans are completely into it and happy, and therefore they're like, "I want to see what else happens." And as an opening contest, there's not much more you can ask for than you get the fans invested and they want to watch more. Right,
0: if it was a, a botch, uh, I'll, I'll just say it now. On the raw match, the heels win on the raw rematch. So if, like you said, if it was a botch and the heels are meant to win. It does feel like a weird way to start off the paper? because surely, given the reaction that Tukul got, the natural thing it should be to have these guys win because it can set up Scott and uh, Grandmasters contenders for the tag team titles. Because, you no, know, I think part of the reason t- these guys are in this match, other than the great great chemistry with those two, and and Curtis keels going up against an over three-man act, in Tukul should is because that they don't have contenders at this time, or seemingly any obvious people to put them against. Whereas if you put them against 2 go, you've got ready made food there, especially the that they've lost. And Rikishi and Kurt Angle, you know, they're both on the up and up. And I think either of them losing probably doesn't hurt the other. But I think, you know, it's a, it's a nice feel-good win for the to start the show because God knows uh, after a certain point, we don't have many of those on this show.
1: <laughs> it, it seems like uh, almost like an apology. Uh, like, oh, enjoy this. Why you can? Because it's it. You ain't gonna get any more like this <laughs> afterwards, so, which is mildly disappointing. And I I I also will question some of the decisions that occur as we go through, but that's for then. Um, at least they started off positively enough that um, the fans can be happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they get to do also their their dancing at the end, so you know a crowd or and you keep them hot to go through to the next match but before that we do get a HBK promo getting interview with Michael Cole asking will he call I the Ironman match demo you were spotted and so and so's locker room during the Sunday night heat. I didn't mention that Sean was randomly seen walking backstage after we saw the Brisco uh, in our altercation with the <laughs> altercation with the headbangers and he answered the usual question who wears short shorts Shawn Michaels wears short shorts <laughs>
1: Uh there's a, there's, there's it's definitely not difficult to uh notice him, shall we say, as he's walking around. You're not going to mm-hmm. miss him, are you?
0: You st- you seem to, have to say his hands off the merchandise. The whole merchandise is nearly falling out your shorts for that tight sean. Come on, put it away, lad. <laughs>
1: Just say, I'm pretty sure that this uh, could be classed as indecent exposure, young man, so can you please uh, put it back in your pants uh, uh, just to not scare the children who are watching late at night.
0: Uh, we go to a clip from earlier today of Eddie and Chayna arriving, the audio quality not the best and Eddie's really hamming up his uh, his accent here so it kind of like the way he said, other than the occasional mamacita thrown in there I can't hear what he's fucking saying. But he and China are there, they're, they're in nice, But it's then Malenko shows up and shortly followed by Saturn, both proving why the two of them, as good a they are, never really went anywhere because, God, they are dull. He just like, oh, I'll see you deal with you in the ring. And you, China, you stay out of our business. And then Eddie and China basically just wrote the piss. I'm like, yeah, sure. She won't get involved. <laughs> Wink. And then Saturn just wanders by, clearly not knowing what the hell was said, just went, you want to kiss somebody there? Kiss the ass of the guy who's going to win. And that's me. And just walks off.
1: Afterwards, I swear down the look on Malenko's face. uh, It's almost like he died a little inside, uh, realising the sort of promo he was involved in there. Because it's probably one of the few times he can legitimately say he was not one of the worst promos on there. I mean, I love... Dean Malenko as a wrestler I think he is fucking amazing and there was nothing he couldn't do apart from grow an extra foot in order to be put (laughs) into the position he deserved Um, however promos were never going to be um, his forte should we say no they were
0: not as much as I love DR I I'm a fan on the internet, so I will poke holes and things. And there are two glaring untrue statements that JR says right here. He says that Saturn feels jealous because he's the only one who hasn't held gold. So clearly, we know that the hardcore title means fuck all to JR. So he's he's clearly forgetting that all 30 seconds back a month or so ago that Barry Saturn held the hardcore title for before losing to to Taz or Well, It was
1: one of those two. And then he also says. So, I was really confused at that time. I was legitimately thinking to myself, "I'm sure he was hardcore champion," but it shows how little I cared about Perry Saturn at the time that I didn't actually bother to do the research. So, thank you for doing it for me.
0: He also said, Oh, the last few times this has been defended on pay per view hasn't worked out for the uh, for the European champion. The last time this was defended was. The last time this changed hands on pay per view was at WrestleMania. Since then, and he successfully defended it at backlash against S.C. Rios and an insurrection against Jericho. So, uh, actually, the last few reviews have been very prosperous. But actually, the last few reviews have been done very well for the European champions. So, JR, again, your facts do not add up, because then before then, the last time it changed the view before WrestleMania, was Armageddon, which was in December. So, JR, do you care about any titles like past the IC and WAF no, you don't' be so the other way
1: I do love how invested you are that you took the time to actually look into it and normally that would be me who would be just as invested and looked looked into it but at, at this point I was just like I want to get to the I want to get to the main events I want to get to the matches that unfortunately these are three tremendous wrestlers but there's not a lot that's going to make people care about it because it's three heels, basically wrestling for a title. Two of them are the obvious heels, and one of them is slightly babyface. But really, you're watching three bad guys annoyed at each other. So everyone, it's hard to invest in it as much as I would like to.
0: Yeah, and uh, like like you said, Saturn and Malenko are the obvious because they're angry. At a because they feel abandoned by him in favour of China, They even attack China to help get some heat on them, because Eddie and China are over. But China isn't the most likeable, and Eddie is, like, turning face here. Uh, but, again, can act very heroish. But, again, that's the point in the Attitude Era, where if you're a heel, you act heroishly. But, weirdly, if you're a face, you also act heelishly. So you never really know who the true villain actually is. And, you know, it's a great match of this... These guys would have probably had great matches either one-on-one in different combinations and this triple threats throughout their careers leading up to this. So of course, they know each other at the back of their hand. But, you know, they were just it just felt like I'd when I see these three on the card fighting each other, it's just me that feels like I should be more blown away by a triple threat match between these guys because there are great spots in here. But I just started off with, like, obviously, Milenko and Saturn working together to take out Eddie. But then, obviously within a minute of them even doing an offensive move on Eddie, they're already fighting against each other. And just the point where a guy takes the move and then he goes after the other guy and the third guy pops right back up and doesn't sell the move, he just taken because he has to break up a pinfall. So it's just a case of move, pin break up, move to another person, they provide a pinfall. Like it's just a lot more, you know, rinse repeat in this match than I would have liked.
1: Yeah, I, I get what you're saying in regards to that one. Um, there were some really awesome moments to some degrees. Like I loved um Malenko's gut buster from the second rope on Eddie. I mm. thought was fantastic looking and was really painful to see as well. And I even loved the fact that you had um, Saturn cheekily hitting a frog uh frog splash on eddie and trying to texas cloverleaf on d malenko at the same time which even the commentators noticed and made a comment about but you then had it malenko trying the rings of saturn on saturn his uh the third finisher in a row um and that got no notice at all and all i could think was ah, maybe because Saturn never wins matches, they don't recognize it's his (laughs) finisher, which is really disappointing, I can imagine. Um, There were some interesting inclusions I really liked as well. There was the fact that Eddie and Saturn both entered to their own music, but interestingly, Dean Malenko entered to the Radicals music, which would suggest that even though there's issues between the three of them, Malenko might be the only one subconsciously who is still attached to the idea of the Radicals uh, in that he wants to get it in the ring and just like fight it out like wrestlers do, whereas Saturn has already decided to move on and Eddie has moved on. And I found that a really interesting inclusion uh, compared to um, normal. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, the fact that JR made a really good point where he says, like, ah, two of them should eliminate the third so they could find it out by themselves. And, you know, Jerry Lawler going like, oh, that's really good advice, actually. And all I could think was, huh, that sounds like the sort of thing you'd expect an ex-professional wrestler to already have thought about. But then I'm obviously giving Jerry Lawler too much credit again. Um, then
0: again, then again, Jerry comes from an era where they did triple threat matches. Like, the first WF triple threat match didn't
1: happen until 1997. That is very true, actually. So maybe that is a fair point. I'll have to hold my hands up to that. Um, I enjoyed the match to the degrees that it wasn't that boring. It was very quick and fast-paced, and there was no like downtime, and there was always something happening. But it definitely, um, it definitely wasn't getting a reaction from the crowd. And I think it, considering how hot they were for two cool. it's mildly disappointing to think that three wrestlers who are deserving of actual heat because of how good they are got nothing. Whereas like two dancing clowns in uh, black and white polka dots were absolutely huge over. Um, yeah, this, this match didn't have the crowd it deserved, I felt. Um, and I'd like to assume what it would been like if they'd had even longer to work with.
0: Yeah, because this only goes like, it's just shy of eight minutes this, this gets. So maybe the fact that they were constantly coming back in and breaking up ends, maybe it was because they were working against a short kind of time limit. I do like that Eddie takes advantage at one point of, of Saturn and Malico being distracted and can't work together to take out the champion. So he manages to low-pull them both at the same time, <laughs> which was That's pretty cool. cool. But I think like the part of the reason Saturn, uh, I like think part of the reason that Dean blocking the rings of Saturn uh, didn't get much mentions because he, he looked a bit like he couldn't get it on properly. Like, it took him a while to properly set up the move, and I'm watching like you're not really living up to your reputation as the man of a thousand holds, are you? <laughs> Especially when the because given that the man of a thousand and four holds is going to be in a submission match later on tonight. It uh, was a good bout. I think it's against Saturn where he just counters a pop-up power bomb attempt into a hurricane rana. Uh, the finish is very of this era. It's very Eddie and China. I believe. This became so popular. That this ended up going in one of the old SmackDown games at the time, where uh, China has a lead pipe hidden in the flowers, which he uses to help out Eddie to defeat Saturn Michael. She hits Saturn, I think, with them, and then trips up uh, Dane, which allows Eddie to sneak up and hit him with a roll up for the win. So, you know, I think like both the European and IC titles have like great workers fighting over them. They both kind of got workhorse status applied to them with the people who are challenging for them, but like, the IC title has already got the reputation as a workhorse belt, whereas the European title seems to have more of an uphill battle for people to kind of invest in the people fighting over it because they care about Eddie as a character because he's so charismatic, obviously, but mm. just like it was weird at Backlash as well where it didn't seem like the SA Wheels match looked up to its potential. Cause, so I don't think they're as invested in the matches they are the guy holding the belt because Eddie and China are absolutely becoming coming one of the more popular acts on TV.
1: It does seem quite strange that unfortunately uh, the European title and the Intercontinental title, especially since um, Kurt Angle had both, have become very interchangeable to some degrees in that they both seem to be held by workhorses who are trying to have workhorse-like matches. but it's very difficult to have that same standing when one of them has the history that the Intercontinental title does. I mean, the Intercontinental title is actually main event of the major pay-per-view, thinking of SummerSlam 92 with British Bulldog and Bret Hart, whereas the European title, the closest they've ever gotten, was a very successful tournament final between, again, British Bulldog and this time Owen Hart. There's a shorter history that is going to, that unfortunately was never capitalized upon to the degree that it made the European title stand out more. And it's always going to be a case of, regardless of how much work a European champion puts into it, it's always going to be a second best, especially considering the similarities in what they're doing. I think some of the best times of the European title is when um, William Regal has it which has a different context to it. But again, it's just, it, it, it doesn't make it stand out as much. It's not like the difference between a intercontinental title and a cruiserweight title, you know, like, uh, like you could have had from WCW or you have, for instance, a, I don't know, a hardcore division and you have a, um, united states championship something like that there's not enough to differentiate it's too similar and this mm-hmm. is where it really damages well not damages but it, it like you said creates an uphill battle for the european title to gain relevance
0: yeah i mean one of these days uh, actually one day very soon me and paul and our show we've done like some retrospectives wrestling wise and we did one about the light of and we have plans to do one for the european title I think there's a argument to me that even after as early as Shawn Michaels winning off of the initial champion British Bulldog, and the only real main event in that Bill ever got one night only, which isn't following memory as when Bulldog main evented for the IC belt, Because when you think of that match, you think of the response, the hey, Brett carrying them through the match to get that big response. Whereas when I think of One Night Only, the European title main event, and I think of uh, Bulldog getting screwed as as triple h towards the microphone up to his mouth scream for your country bulldog as he's been put in a figure <laughs> form by Shawn michaels but there were ebbs and flows like for the european deals like 98, 99 thanks to people like deal brown and X-Pac. but now eddie's working overtime to make people care about this spell at this stage it really does feel like and you know things dean being in this match no, not enough was really made about the idea of him becoming a double champion. I don't think being a light heavyweight champion. And mm. he, I think he likes to think that maybe in the divorce of the Radicals, he won the right to keep the theme song. Really, I think the other Radicals just tricked him because neither of them wanted it. So they made him think that he'd won something. Whereas, whereas they're like, phew, we just developed the there, didn't we?
1: <laughs> uh, so, I think mean, the light heavyweight championship is almost a complete non-factor here. When in actuality, probably Dean Malenko should have been the most dangerous individual in the match. Because whereas he and Eddie have both been champions, Dean Malenko has held his, I think, the longest out of both of them and has been a successful defending champion without the need of interference. So in actuality, Dean Malenko should have been one of the strongest individuals coming into the match, not Eddie. I'd almost go so far to say I think it almost would have been better if it had just been... Dean versus Eddie. Um, I mean, you just have to look at some of the tremendous matches they had in ECW. But um, you would have two actual legitimate champions being able to demonstrate how good they are by facing one another. And that could have been much better than the triple threat match. Like, Saturn was fine, but I think a better story would have been Malenko versus Guerrero, especially if it had been title versus title.
0: Mm. And then Eddie probably would have ended up having to win the like, heavyweight title on there. I don't think I think they'd quickly loads and just like, ah, we've got this built on Eddie. We don't know what to do with it. Ah, oh, let's get it back off Eddie. Eddie's bigger than this. <laughs> he does. Unfortunately, the state of it.
1: To be fair, they'd already given up to some degree so the like heavyweight title. So they could just quite easy had it that they did um that they actually unite the two titles. No, I don't think it was going to be massively missed, um, which is very disappointing. And I've just literally this second discovered a fact that is going to probably blow your mind. I wanted to check to see how long um, Eddie Guerrero and D Malenko had had the championships in comparison to each other. I want you to think of every title holder currently in WWF at this time, who do you think had held their title the longest by judgment day? I wanna
0: guess that it's uh well actually because I want to guess is Dean because Dean was like the first member of the radicals to win a bill and he did it before Mania two thousand. And I actually think the second longest man might even be Stephanie, given that she won her on the go home show for me, yeah.
1: Um it's actually Stephanie who is the longest because De milenko oh, yeah. lost it to Scotty, to Hottie. Um, you have it that De milenko as of this event, has held the title for 26 days. Uh, Eddie Guerrero had held the European title for 48 days. Edge and Christian just pip him to the post with 49 days. But the at this rate, the marathon woman in terms of holding the title for a 54 days was Stephanie McMahon-Helmsley. Wow, ah, what a
0: fighting championship it has been. I wanted to say Stephanie is number one, but something was telling me it wasn't. I don't know how I could have forgotten poor Scotty to Hottie State already because it led us to that great match at Backlash, how could I have forgotten?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think combined, probably De Malenko has definitely had it the longest, and really, the reign that Scotty had was very inconsequential, so you probably could have removed it. In fact, if I have a quick look. So, com- so originally De Malenko ha- held it for 35 days, lost it to Scotty for 8, so that would have been 43. So really, if they hadn't included that, he would have been coming into s- as a champion for 69 days. Nice. Nice. There we go.
0: That's a nice one. (laughs) We got a nice size. Gerald Briscoe is hiding in the bathroom because he's trying to get away from people trying to go after the the hardcore championship. He's he's just looking around and then he punches a mirror because he sees somebody in the bathroom. Turns out it's his own reflection (laughs) because he's that paranoid.
1: (laughs) I, I, I hate to say it, I actually liked uh, that Lawler instantly starts whispering as soon as Briscoe is sneaking around. <laughs> it really tied back to when Briscoe won it from Crash Holly. I thought that was actually relatively inspired. It did make me laugh. And I, I, the hardcore title is just fun. And I think that's mm-hmm. something... Um, I think roundabout, there's some times where you... That, you forget that wrestling can be fun Um, when it's badly done, which unfortunately is what usually you get from WWE. The comedy is usually pretty awful, but when you get really good people who are able to create a bit of comedy, and I will say, I think the two stooges really do count for this because Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe always added to something. Um, It can put a smile on your face. And I think that's a very underrated element of wrestling in general.
0: Mm-hmm. and really just to these segments the hardcore titles are more over and more important right now than either the two belts that we were just talking about, the light heavyweight and the European, so let yeah. that sink in for you for a bit uh, well, for, like, this match, this pay-per-view at this stage, obviously we've already had a six-man tag and a triple threat, so kind of gimmicks applied there, but not overly gimmicky, but there are like multiple men in one match, so no, no straight-up singles matches going forward the gimmicks are going into overall now because in a we have a false skin anywhere match, a uh, submission match, a tables match, and an Iron Man match. So it's like whenever you play GM mode on the, one of the games where every week you have to just put everyone in a different gimmick match. then wonder the next week why everyone's injured.
1: <laughs> uh, it, it, it's definitely, it's like the original Extreme Rules to some mm. degrees, um, but I'd almost say done well because... I feel to some degrees there's a legitimate reason for all of the match choices as opposed to it, be it feeling forced, which you sometimes got with a lot of the later Extreme Rules uh, pay-per-views where it's like, oh, it has to be a tables match or oh, it has to be an Iron Man match, when in actual fact, I feel to some degrees each of these matches with the stipulations they have not only makes sense, but... Are required elements of the story
0: mm-hmm. I, I definitely Agree with that And obviously this match has a gimmick Attach it so it can allow for shenanigans Given that involves someone who right now Knows that they're an non wrestler And doesn't have a high ego of himself And tries to rebook his spot in the Royal Rumble You have Shane McMahon taking on the Big Show In a false kit era match Shane, Shane comes out with a Big Show well, a Big, big Nasty Bathroom t-shirt on. But on the back it, it says Which way did he go uh, Big Show's still coming out to that horrible WF aggression song of his and Shane you know what the Lord loves a, a tryer but he was a fool to try this he immediately tries to dive over the top onto the Big Show who just catches him out of midair like it's nothing and what I like about this match it only goes seven and a half minutes which is shorter than I thought it would but to be fair as good as he is at this point I don't really feel like watching a match with a McMahon go fairly long so I'm happy to them to keep it short, but the smarter thing they did here is quite a few people interfere on Shane's behalf, but from the boss man to TNA to big bilby can at the end, and it's only when someone else is with someone else's assistance that Shane gets get any offence at all, whereas when no one's helping him, it's all big show, which makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's a very rare occurrence you can have it that a crowd will cheer on A giant beating up a smaller person Um, it it requires really good um, dickish behavior such as Bobby Heenan Heenan with Andre the Giant or in this case Shane McMahon uh, being such a dick that everyone is happy to see the Big Show beat the crap out of him Um, I have to admit at the start of the match when Shane is stood in the ring and you can you get like a side glimpse of him is it just me or does Shane have like a really weak chin that looks like it's going to wobble any second? Like if you put him in a city where he is basically the modern interpretation of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, it's very distracting <laughs> when it starts um, and you get to see the big show bring out a very rare power bomb on the big boss man. Uh, he also debuts his weapon of mass destruction punch about 10 years early by knocking out TNA when they went in with chairs. Um and seeing him throw Trish onto onto Tess and Albert was like a grown man throwing a pillow. It was it look, amazing. It looked like the
0: it looked like the last act of bloody King Kong the way he picked it up and then good on Tess and Albert for being able to catch her, but you know, <laughs> Trish's strategy is going all I didn't see. Wait, like, last month she got put to the table by Bubba Ray. And then mm-hmm. she willingly lets the big show just pick her up with one hand, and throw her to the outside of the ring.
1: She's like, "I am one of the boys. Get me, get me in there, get me involved." And then she like ends up ten feet in the air, and she's like, "I regret every life decision I ever made." At uh, this point, um, and it's just what's what's really impressive is that by now the crowd are hugely behind big show they are cheering him on wildly as he's like the same scene where he's stalking shane down the ramp um it was just absolutely fantastic it's like it's like arnold schwarzenegger finally getting his hands on the bastard who killed his wife or something like that uh, the crowd are just like completely invested cheering it on etc and then you get up to the entrance. And this for me is why I feel it starts going downhill. But I'll allow you to uh describe to those at home uh what happens first of all and then I will give my opinion on it.
0: Uh, well I think Big Show's planning on throwing Shane into side, the side of the the staging care somewhere, threw him into the WF.com, dot com saying on Raw. But Shane manages to like he said a child in a jungle gym or one of those soft play areas, grabs onto the hooks and just swings up and drop kicks Big Show in the face. And also Big Show so easily managed to rip off part of the set, which I don't think showcases this thing. It's just good to show that whoever the contractor was that put this together really ripped the WAF off. <laughs> and then TNA managed to come back, prove the usefulness for a brief second, and allow Shane to put the the bit of a staging that, tri- that that Big Show ripped off, and just shove it on a, one of those big rolling crates and throw it into his face. So Big Show managed to then easily dispatch of TNA again. It's up to the star of the real star of this show, Big Booby Cannon, to help, to help Shane push a giant speaker, which has all sparks randomly go off, onto the Big Show's leg. And Big Show just scream in agony acting like this thing weighs like a thousand pounds, like a giant boulder, the boulder from Indiana Jones has rolled onto his leg. And then Shane sneaks up behind the Big Show, who's weakly pushing at this speaker, and smashes a fucking cinder block off his head. I know it looked very weak when it crumbled, but in the world of a cinder block, it's been cracked on his head, so you know, if the big show kicked out, I'd have been surprised, but, but Shane manages to win and, you know, he skates with it when he gives him something to brag about, call himself Simba and everything. The next round, Roy officially declares himself Shane the Giant Killer, which is the thing you carry along for a couple of months. But, like, how weakly this crumbles, like, like a weak rich tea that you dipped into your tea and immediately half of it falls back into the cup
1: it's just it's it's just madness um to so that I almost it, it's really frustrating because it's almost at a point that it's near perfection the way they've built this up um by the time that Big Show is stalking up the ramp that everyone is behind him and I even love this like the mild bit of um detail with where Show lifts up the metal pieces with almost almost easy, he struggles a little bit and then you see in comparison Shane barely able to drag it which really puts over how strong and intimidating base could be um, but I I, f- I hate this ending, I hate it so much um, because for two reasons not only do I feel it is ridiculous to have the smarmy heel get away with being a dick and a bully for several weeks, which it was, it was, it's basically a bully getting away with being a bully, which makes sense in WWE. Um, but, um, you had the booking done so well that crowd were firmly behind big show, finally getting his revenge and being able to cement himself as a threat. And then you have this really anticlimactic finish where, after he's destroyed everyone, he gets hit with a stick a couple of times by Bobby Buchanan, gets a couple of things dropped on him, and then Shane McMahon wins. And I get that Big Show had an injury and he was going to take two months off after this, but I still find the booking decisions in this match questionable at best, if not just plain disappointing. And it frustrates me to hell thinking how good could Big Show have been if they'd actually just gone ahead and had him win
0: Mm -hmm. I mean I think a lot of the issues that Shane mentions to Big Show calling him in, what are they calling him a slob and everything I said at the time that a lot of that is probably Vince speaking through Shane because Big Show was getting a reputation for being a bit lazy at this time he did have a bit of an attitude, he himself would admit that he had an attitude, I think part of that is much as his injury is the reason he didn't win this, because you'll he gets put, taken off in the ambulance and everything, swearing he'll get revenge on Shane, and I mean, yeah, it makes Shane even more you know despicable and everything, and gives you more reason to hate him but like you said, yeah, it was the most over and behind the Big Show people were more behind Big Show here than when he was the WAF champion, so just mm-hmm. think about that, but Big Show, I'll put a little fact in here, this is Big Show's last pay-per-view appearance for the entirety of 2000. Kennedy <laughs> will go away, come back in the summer very briefly, get sent to OVW before he had big SummerSlam plans, and they, they even start setting up the SummerSlam plans, which we'll see on TV when we get to it, before immediately, wait, Russianly, keep taking the Big Show out of that match uh, and sending him back to OVW to lose some weight and, you know, you know, basically, with some of that fucking attitude that you had before you returned to Nello 2001.
1: It's really frustrating Frustrating. to say and (laughs) to some degree there's a real what if. What if he hadn't been injured? What could have happened? Um, Because his push had been very stop-start for the majority of the time he'd been with the WWE so far and then this almost feels like it was meant to be. They had almost lighting in a bottle. Big Show was over more than he has probably ever been at that point in WWE. And it just ends up going nowhere. And that's very disappointing. And it's the first disappointing decision, I would say, of the night, uh, because I did not agree with the booking of the ending or who went over. So that, uh, but it kind of was indic- indicative of uh, where things were going to go from here, wasn't
0: it? Well, bit, yeah, well, but, you know, like I said on Smackdown the like, yeah, the heels too tall for the most part, but don't worry, they're all get their comeuppance at the uh, the day view. Okay, so Shane didn't get his comeuppance, but the other baddies, they'll get their comeuppance. Don't you worry. So <laughs> before that, let me cheer you up. We've got Gerald Briscoe again. He's wanting to hide in the the referees' room. He, he pulls the, the blinds down so no one can look in the window and walk past to see that he's in there. And so he goes, to, wants to hide with the referees, and they say, yeah, come on. I'm like, oh, man, they, they're all trying to get me. I just want to take a in there. And then the referees almost argument themselves like which one is going to potentially go after Bristol and the Hardcore title, where you're like, hey, what the hell are you doing? And then he kind of just like shoves them in the ground and knocks them on their arse. And more often than not, whenever he gets into a fight with somebody, I'd be rooting for, I'd have my money on Briscoe because even a 50-year-old that he is here, he is still like, got this amateur background as a shooter, so Mm -hmm. I'd take Briscoe over a fight over most of these guys any day as hardcore champion.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. He's actually a a legitimate wrestler, um, which is very impressive, and he could handle himself back in the days where you had to handle yourself. So... It's a, it says something about how good he is actually as a character that he's able to come across as so um, harmless to some degrees. Where in actual fact, if you knew the reality behind him, it's kind of like an older version of Kurt Angle in that he could be very goofy and daft, etc. And you think, oh, obviously he's gonna—he can't be—he can't be that bad. But in actuality, if you knew their background, you'd be like, "Fuck, this is someone who's actually legitimate."
0: Have you heard the story of how uh, a creative meeting in Briscoe put uh, Triple H in his place later in
1: 2000? Is this when they were talking about Angle being champion?
0: I think it was, no, it was about Angle potentially, the, the storyline that they were teasing later on shoot with Angle and Stephanie that was going to lead to in kayfabe, because I don't think they were together in real life yet. Uh, Stephanie leaving Triple H for Kurt Angle, uh, which is more believable than when she weirdly aligned with Jericho in 2002, but Triple to claim that Angle, like it wouldn't be believable when we like someone like Stephanie would choose a nerd or whatever like Kurt Angle over him. And Briscoe would be able to just up um, for everybody and like, went, Yeah, but I no, a shoot if I kick your ass. Because <laughs> I think Briscoe may have been one of the guys that scouted Angle because it seemed to be for a while that anybody who came in with some amateur or real background in sport and everything, a lot of them at least when it comes to like an amateur background, it was Gerald Briscoe that scouted him.
1: That wouldn't surprise me all that much, Um, and I love the idea of that because there was was another one I heard which was um, interesting where supposedly when they were talking about giving Kurt Angle the WWF title, Triple H was like, um, it's not believable that he could be a world champion, and someone turned around to him and said, why don't you go have a legitimate fight with him and then find out. And that's when he just shut up, and they gave the title mm-hmm. to Angle. Because, and and I I I wouldn't be surprised if it was Joe Briscoe who said that. To be honest, because <laughs> Kurt Angle and Gerald Briscoe are both legitimate fuckers, so it's very impressive.
0: Nice you hear story that someone like <laughs> shut down like that. Like Nash apparently complained about booking me, no. Oh, uh, I got paid less than AWF champion in history. I think it was Coroner or somebody who jumped up and said, "That's because you drew less money than AWF champion in history."
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yeah. If you got, if you think you you're the you're the bollocks at all, you're going to have it completely decimated uh, before you realise it, which is just absolutely brilliant. I fucking lo- love that.
0: Oh, I don't want God. this. I don't want this story to go on any longer than needs to. I'm going to tell one more story before I learn that. One more one. I think it was Cody that told on Jericho's podcast when he appeared with the Bucks before a whole end, where he talked about Booker T and CM Punk, where he said that like, the idea of like they didn't they try not to say someone's a leader in terms of Bullet Club, because as soon as someone declares themselves a leader, they you know really for a fact they're not the leader, and they said that. Punk was angry that someone had left a bit of trash in the middle of the locker room floor and like him put in the bin and he stood up while he was singing, while he was WD champion. And he said, You know, guys, as locker room leader, I'm gonna need you like to pick your stuff up. Or he said something and he started off the sentence phase with as locker room leader. And Booker T was apparently in the locker room, just and he was reading something and without even looking up from what he was reading, he says, If you have to say you're the locker room leader, you're not the locker room leader. <laughs>
1: Oh fuck it! I mean, uh, uh, Booker T annoys me at times, but do you know what? That's a fair fucking comment. Um, You, if you have to say it or insist it, you're not it. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Those are the rules. Uh, Randomly, Sean Triple H are chatting backstage. They're not talking about the match, but they're just chatting randomly about like Triple H is asking about his family. And the idea, like, oh, John, let me ask you a personal question. Are you really going to wear those shorts? I like these shorts. I hate those shorts. Like, It's like a conversation from fucking Seinfeld these two are having. <laughs> this is the middle of the baby. It's like, like are you trying to re- remind us of these two are pals and I could play into the match? We already know they're pals. <laughs> like, bad idiots. Anyway, moving on. The submission match is up next for the IC Championship. as uh, Benoit versus Jericho. And I do... Like like the idea of this being a submission match because they had the thing a few weeks ago where Jericho got screwed while in this crossface, he didn't tap out. But Ben was insisting that, yeah, but if he'd stayed in the move any longer, he would have tapped out. No aspect that's missing from this video package, but most of it is dedicated. Like the the sharp, uh, the crippler crossface, the walls of Jericho, which is the more devastating submission? Really, you're only highlighting one of the thousand and four holes as I mentioned earlier. Jericho knows where was the mention of his. Thirty different variations of arm bar that he knows of the mo- three handed moss covered family credunza, or whatever he calls it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely! Uh, I, oh, they they could have led into that, which would have been great, but that would obviously ha- uh, mean having to admit that um, there's actual wrestling outside of the WWF, uh, which obviously, as we know, the WWF doesn't get involved in wrestling because it's sports entertainment so it is um it, it's a it's it's unfortunate i have to say from a storytelling point of view i'm 100 percent invested even before they get in the ring and it's something as simple as the music showing the contrast between the two where you have Jericho's music, obviously very rock orientated, very like almost in your face, like G in the crowd up. Um, and then you have Benoit's very simplistic, to the point music of just like da 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 becoming of their characters and I loved seeing the contrast between the two if you if you only knew who these two people were based on as they entered the ring their music tells you everything
0: yeah it it tells you that Benoit is good but doesn't have charisma and tells you that Jericho also that Jericho has charisma just by how much goes into both of their entrance musics like just the whole thing with Jericho and the video bags then fading into his pose tells you a lot about him. And what I like about this the start of this match is that Lawler on commentary actually gets Ben, what actually gets Jr. Ger- actually gets Jr. to admit which, like finisher he thinks it might be the more superior. Like on the spot, Jr. says that he thinks the, the crossface might have the edge because, to his in his words, it takes the walls of Jericho takes longer to apply. In the cross phase where the cross, you can get in it quicker. So he says that ben Benoit might have the edge in the match, but they do give us a recap of the fact that was going in with the with knee brace on, which comes at play later on because of the attack with the chair by Hardcore Holly. And then we randomly get Hardcore Holly and Val Venus watching the match backstage to take you out of it briefly and say, Oh, remember, you've got these guys who are wanting the IC title for some reason, when really, you only really, People who, who should care about
1: the IC title are in the ring right now. Mm. I think, um, it's very strange to have the heel enter as the weaker of the two. And I think I remember that when we were discussing the actual SmackDown episode, we were both a little bit surprised that it was Benoit being attacked afterwards to give him an injury before he goes in, when normally you would have expected that to happen to Jericho. Um, I do understand that. Um, it's a really good opportunity to show that Benoit is not just a fighting champion but a tough bastard um, which is 100% true in this situation Um, it just is very strange decision making I -hmm. have to admit
0: You can also tell through the video pack and just how Jericho goes to this match that it's not like at the beginning if you're going into Backlash where he was calling then, well, he missed over Roboto and Chris Benoit and everything. Like, Jericho's was a lot more serious now in this feud because he won the IC title and then he lost it back and he was screwed over it and he wants it back. So the feud's getting a lot more serious between the two, the longer it goes on. And then Jericho gets Ben won the first submission hold of the match. And where does he get him in? An arm bar. Arm
1: bar. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. I love that not only for the call back to his history, but I also... It's the fact that he subverts your expectation because he, you expect him to go for the Bulldog as normal and then instead he locks in the armbar. And that, to me, instantly demonstrates the different mindset compared to normal, whereas normally he would go for the Bulldog in order to set up for another move. Here, it's vital that he gets in a submission hold, so therefore he changes his game plan. And it's those little story traits that instantly will get me more invested in a match showing someone doing something different depending on the situation and i absolutely loved it i have to admit that i was already going yeah i'm into this um i don't did you notice afterwards uh jerry lawler making an innuendo about the tombstone position
0: i think i I think i did yeah
1: yeah, and all I could think was um, I would be very curious to see whether or not he would make an innuendo about the tombstone position if it was the Undertaker doing it. Uh, because if he did so, I'm pretty sure he'd have less teeth than Grandpa Simpson.
0: <laughs> uh, ben Ward also targets the, the arm and the shoulder of a uh, Gergo. It's a really nice looking shoulder breaker, even moved the top turnbuckle pad to a kind of dry Gergo into it. to set him up for the across space. Uh Benoit's knee brace getting ripped off. Both guys you get a chance to use that as a as a weapon during the match because they emphasize there's no disqualification. It can only end by by submission. Uh Jericho really stretches out Benoit with the balls of Jericho and they're almost tarantula like when the jury would kind of do a similar looking move. And Benoit's just skewing the referee well, looks like he's going to count, but he realizes there's no DQ, so there's nothing much he can he can really do here. And then I, to JR's did you, did you point earlier on about the 0-0 well, taking long into the fly, other than this one and, and the uh, and the ropes, Dergo does struggle to get the move into Benoit, so he does actually get proven right.
1: Yeah, I think um, it, it's quite fascinating to see how the both of them try building up to their finishers and the planning they put into it. And a lot of the moves that Jericho utilizes is probably easier than the actual finisher he's going to get to. Uh, you have, it, for instance, that when he isn't attacking the knee, which he does very early on in the match in order to weaken Benoit, a lot of his moves will uh, have been amended slightly. So I remember at one point he goes for a backbreaker. Now, normally you would, it would land probably like the middle or upper part of the back. But you notice he specifically moves to the lower level at the back in order to have it that it will increase the power and pain of the walls of Jericho. We have another moment where like Benoit instead of uh drops um drops the left knee on Jericho even though that's the injured one because he knows that his body can't take the his left knee can't take the weight if he was just leaning on it and it's these little interplays as you're watching crew that it makes it a very fascinating chess piece but it's always going to be a case that benoit is going to have the advantage to some degrees and that even though he has the weakness he has the easiest submission like you could do the cripple Crossface to anyone out of nowhere it doesn't matter whether you're um hornswoggle or andre the giant you know you can do it whereas jericho due to the focus of it he needs to completely weaken an opponent in order to be able to lock it in and even then it's going to be difficult so the inclusion to build up to how difficult to get the walls of jericho on and how easy the cross face is is a very fascinating double element to it
0: mm-hmm. and then also when they're using the the knee brace like when the Gerald jericho catches ben on the face with it, it's really hard to watch because we know that uh ben what his eye and his nose kind of got flipped up when they did this thing a few weeks ago where he went for the diving headbutt and Jericho got the title bill up in his face, and kind of breaking his nose. So he's trying to re-enter them there, and then have yeah, a very very Austin-esque spot here with the ending because Jericho does get caught into the wall to the Crippler Crossway. It looks like he is getting it but they do the spot where like well, Benwell won't let go of the hold until Jericho taps, but he keeps him in for so long that Jericho just just passes out. So yeah, he did. He doesn't win the IC title, but. Like, the whole thing that Benoit really wanted more than to retain was to prove he could make Jericho tap. And even though he didn't win the title, he took that away from Benoit. And to the point where Benoit wouldn't let go of the hole until, like, several referees come in to try and break him away from Jericho.
1: I 100% agree. I actually had my notes saying very similar. Where, it, it, where because... This match is built on Jer- uh, Jericho, supposedly having not tapped when Benoit won the title. That becomes his all-consuming need. He needs to have Jericho tap to vindicate the fact that he's the champion. And it's from a storytelling point of view, it's amazing to have it that Benoit wins, but not on his terms, whereas mm. Jericho loses but on his terms refusing to tap and it really plays into the idea of whether you have a full victory or not and who comes out of it better like Jericho comes out looking impressive in that he refused to tap he kept on battling through and Benoit to some degrees looks impressive as well in that he won when he was weakened But neither of them got what they really wanted. Benoit wanted to have Jericho tapped to confirm he was the better man. And Jericho wanted the Intercontinental title. And this has proven a history so far that Jericho cannot beat Benoit. And this is now the story that is being developed. And it will actually come to great fruition over the next year, where it will tell the next stages of their story and where they go from there. But I will say that as a child, I found this match mildly boring. Um, It's because that as a child, I was a fucking idiot. (laughs) Because nowadays, I love matches like this. This is a match that I will sit and watch with pleasure. There's a reason why one of my favorite matches of all time, even though not not a lot of people will probably uh, know of it, Is the ultimate submission match between Kurt Angle Mm. and Chris Benoit and I think it's such an undervalued and underappreciated um uh demonstration and teaching lesson of how you can create a fantastic submission match and I will always be invested in matches like this and these two to some degrees the crowd were into it to some degrees but you just think of how much more appreciated this could have been at a later stage. I mean, imagine if you took this match and did it 20 years later. Well, you, ba- you basically would have um, Brian Danielson um, taking on probably like, so sort of, I don't know, maybe like, I don't know who can I think of? Um, you'd have two top class submission wrestlers, beloved by the fans, who would just come in and battle, etc. This match would be beloved nowadays, and it was probably underappreciated and undervalued at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jericho gets the appreciation he deserves at the end when Benoit is obviously angry. They, he said he didn't win on his terms, but Jericho actually looks like he won more than, than Benoit did because he gets to stand up and uh, leave on his own accord. The fans are all applauding him. and and they are clearly knowing that they're about to go into an ad uh, says that Jericho can leave here, he can call himself the king of the ring, and then he goes into a vignette for the king of the ring pay-per-view next month, which just, which just insists, consists of Triple H and a warehouse and a ring talking uh, about how he rules this ring, while being up a bunch of randomers who look like they wrestle in their backyard while just in this empty warehouse for some reason, Uh 13 and a half minutes, this went, longest undercard match and so far match of the night, in my opinion. But King of the Ring 2000, I have fond memories of this. The salvia has maybe skewed my view of this pay-per-view <laughs> and I look forward to watching the build to it and watching it, it, it back itself to see how it goes up because there are some matches that, you know, logic-wise don't make any sense why they have the, the stipulations that they do, but they end up producing great results, I think, despite that. And I actually think that despite what we say about the outcome of some of these matches, I think you can pinpoint King of the Ring without spoiling much. King of the Ring, I think, is the real end point for the McMahon-Helms regime as we know it right now.
1: Yes, I think I would agree. This, um, to, to some degrees, you were hoping that the previous month Backlash would have been the beginning of the end for the mcmahon era. And to some degrees, it almost felt like they were going to do the complete opposite when in actual fact they were building up the blocks for the end which was going mm-hmm. to be king of the ring so it does feel like just to, to some degrees the story was armageddon to king of the ring um mm-hmm. which does actually make a lot of sense and then it allows them to create a new story that begins from pretty much fully loaded all the way up to i'd say res- wrestlemania um Your nostalgia is for King of the Ring. Mine is actually for Fully Loaded, which uh, turned out to be the last fully loaded pay-per-view ever in history. And I'm fascinated to see whether or not the enjoyment of the pay-per-views I watched younger still stands up nowadays. Because it's weird. I didn't appreciate this pay-per-view when I was younger. And now I'm loving it. Whereas when... I was younger i loved fully loaded and i'm worried it's going to turn out it was one of those where ah it turns out i was a fucking idiot again so <laughs> I'm, I'm it's the, the nostalgia comparison is fascinating uh I'm, and king of the ring will definitely be curious to see
0: i am more confident that your nostalgia will probably hold up more than mine just i mean i haven't even gotten to the build to them yet or even looked at them yet but nostalgia had not been key to me in the early months of scott and paul's violin podcast we watched bad blood 2004 because i had it it was one of the first wrestling dvds i ever had uh that wasn't one of my brothers that i watched it was actually my my dvd and i came challenging for the world title and it had that hell in a cell matching football h and sean in it I watched it back. There are two great matches on that show. Kane is not involved in either of them. And the rest of the show is absolute just dross. Like, the Hell in the Cell and the ICT match between Orton and Benjamin is worth watching. The rest of the show is worth avoiding.
1: I'm curious about that because I've heard some people I've heard that the Hell in the Cell match especially at that pay-per-view is very um, conflict. Oh, is that though? Just to just remind me, is that Triple H versus Shawn Michaels?
0: Yeah, it's the one. The today it's the longest Hell in a Cell of all time. I still think it's a great Hell in a Cell match.
1: I've heard some people say that they love it, and I've heard some people say it is uh, almost legitimate uh, self-gratulation by both men because they have forty-seven minutes dedicated to them wrestling, and everyone's just like, "You are fucking killing me watching this." So. I,
0: I'd rather watch that than Jericho versus Tyson Tomko,
1: which is also on the cards. Oh God, that's going to be bad. I so think I know what i I think. I think I remember <laughs> that feud actually, because wasn't that was when Tomko was uh, um, Christian's bitch, basically, wasn't he?
0: Yes, he was the problem solver. no problem he couldn't solve was learning how to fucking wrestle. <laughs> ah.
1: Yeah. My problem is uh uh people being invested in my wrestling. How do I solve that? By being shit.
0: (laughs) Anyhow, Briscoe is getting angry about Michael, I can't get a moment's sleep, it's killing me being the hardcore champion. I go home, my boys are trying to beat me. I go the Briscoe's body up there trying to beat me. People are attacking me at the airport. I can't take it. I try to get Mr. McMahon's coffee. People are attacking me and all the while he's talking to concession stand vendors are walking by with, pot one with a big bag of pocket and the other with a big tray of light drink and mm-hmm. they're both looking at each other and one of them decides he's going to pin, trying to attack Briscoe, he tries to grab a and then he looks around and he just starts dropping the concessions all over the guys and he manages to kick their arses as well, <laughs> because again Joe Briscoe is legit, he'll kick your arse, even in his 50s and then we just get The Rock backstage warning Sean Michaels that if he doesn't call a match through in the middle so the Rock's basically going to beat the Sheryls and it won't take 60 minutes to do so. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, I kind of wanted, to some degrees that um, Briscoe spends all this time being paranoid and worried and in the end he will lose the title through the least likely person. But uh, as we know, that isn't going to happen. This being a fan of the Hardcore Division and the 24-7 rule, I'm, su- I'm sure it doesn't surprise you to hear that I didn't mind the inclusions of Briscoe as we went along, um, especially when it ends up with him attacking two vendors. I'll be curious to find out what poor wrestlers um, had to play those vendors and probably get legitimately punched by Joe Briscoe. <laughs> uh,
0: next, that we go to a a tag team tables match. DX taking on uh, taking on the Dudley Boy. Those oh, damn Dudley Balls. <laughs> uh, also, Joe Holder makes a joke about Jr. And then clearly wasn't prepared for any follow up questions because he says, "Jr. You know, Jr. I can't. to see you get put through a table." And Jr. Ger- like, why the hell would you say something like that? Well, pause. Okay, well, I don't like you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, the three tables were really one for Xbox, one for Aurora, one for Tori, but then there's a fourth one. Wait, fourth table? They got one table for you, JR.
1: Oh, God. I remember that comment, because I remember actually thinking at the time, Jerry, you have 0% evidence or hints at all that this is possibly a table for JR. You, there was stretching, there was forcing, and then there was bullshitting. So I was not impressed by that one. I mean but to be fair, I don't think that was the worst part of the match. But the idea of uh, it's interesting that we just seen a match that will inspire the future, uh, in terms of like the sort of style that would become popular, and it gets followed by an act as tired as D Generation X.
0: Yeah, even by two thousand this is like this is getting old. And yet X Bot Hall where Continued to wear the black and green, DX uh, gear despite the fact that when DX were at their peak, he was wearing black and red for some reason. I like think he thought, like he was like he thought he was in the fucking wolf pack. But I thought it was weird. The Dudley's came out with a table as they often do for these kind of matches. Then they very lazily set it up halfway up the ramp and then just leave it there. They could have brought it closer to the ring, but you no, know, they have to then do that thing that proves they want to have a fight, which is run to the ring. It's the most running Bubba's has ever done. Uh, and it's weird, despite the rules of this match, both members of the opposing team must be put through or table in order to win. They, they, they open the first five or so minutes of this match as if it's an actual tag match where you have Taylor long arguing whether or not somebody tagged in because he didn't quite see it or trying to tell somebody, oh, no, you can't come in here because I missed your tag. Like, Teddy, it doesn't fucking matter because the tag ropes don't matter because all that matters is putting people through tables. What are you going to do, disqualify Bubba for coming in when you don't think he's legal?
1: It's absolutely fucking ridiculous. It's one of my biggest bugbears. It never makes sense for a table match to include partners tagging in and out. It is absolutely ridiculous, and it frustrates me every time, especially like... So one of the things that really annoys me about is the fact that you've had a previous match at the Royal Rumble, which is demonstrated... What the rules are, which is that you don't tag in and out and you put both individuals through a table. Um, It's bad enough that they've forgotten their own rules and decide that they need tagging, which is the only way they can do it with fucking uh, DX, because God forbid you actually do it in a way that doesn't include some sort of shenanigan bollocks. But then you also have it later on, you have Jerry the King Lawler saying, Hang on, so both members have to be put through a table? And I'm like, Yes, Jerry. Yes, both members had to be put through a table, just like at the Royal Rumble, when you originally asked the question. You absolute fuckwit. Dory from Finding Nemo has a better fucking memory than you. Um, This is how to do a tables match wrong. That's the best way I can describe it, I think, because it takes some of the best elements of it, the tornado tag element, um, uh, the frenzied battle, and the um, just... The knowledge of how to do a fucking tables match and this does everything the complete opposite it has it that you have to tag in and out it has it that supposedly you don't know who how whether to put both of them through it. and then you have shenanigan bollocks even though it's a no disqualification so that they can have an unclean finish because god forbid you have a degeneration x match that doesn't have some form of bollocks related to it
0: I don't know if it's the that I don't remember much, but Daryl asked something about the rules, J.R. had to explain it to him, and then Gerald are at the back with. went, well, I knew that. I was just making sure you were paying attention. <laughs> uh, but to be fair, as soon as they they say, fuck this and go for the tables, then that's when things start to pick up. And, you know, I was surprised that remember the Dudley's is the first to go to the table because you have Devon getting sent into one of the sets st- and then uh, Road Dog Sands, you know, pretend to fuck him in the arse, hits him with the pump handle slam through a table on the outside. Uh, Xbox, should I say, hits him sort of Hurricane. run, I think, but Bubba manages to catch him and powerful him through the table. That means it's either Road Dog or Bubba Ray that needs to go to the table. They're both punching each other. The referee is trying to break them up for some reason. But the table's in the corner and so the... Bubba and Rodog said, decide fuck this, grab the referee and hip toss him through the table. <laughs> to be fair he takes one hell of a bump, you know the rope table doesn't break all that much but, you know, well it's one hell of a bump. Uh, they put uh, Road to through the table with the 3D even though there's no referee to see it. So they decide while they wait for the referee to wake up Bubba looks at Toy like, woman, woman must go through the table. <laughs> and so they go set up her going through the table. Uh, Gerald Briscoe then helps with some very weak-looking gut shots. Although I wouldn't say that to Gerald Briscoe, will probably deck me. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, that's the main thing you take away from his judgement day. If you're not the quality of the matches or anything else, the results, the thing you should take away is that you don't mess with Gerald Briscoe. Yeah,
1: anyway. I think we should have it that when we finish this, uh, the music we're going to go out to is the Briscoe Brothers, because we have to pay attention and appreciate the hardest fucking nut in the place.
0: Yeah. Uh, and that, so uh, Toy gets safely taken away from uh, Harnsworth from Bubba x comes up hits Bubba with an X-Factor through the table which did look impressive Briscoe revises the referee who calls for the bell the Dudleys lose in a Tales match you have to wait a little bit longer for Toy to get her co- to get put through the table and because Bubba will not have rest until the woman is put through the table and then Gerald Briscoe is, as tough as he is he's not very bright then he does if you thought like Shawn Michaels refusing to do a proper crotch shot because of his religious beliefs in two thousand six was bad, Terabrisco has been beat with some of the worst crotch shot crotch shots I've ever seen in my life. Which then gets him gets him three D'd through the table. And why at that point after the whole paranoia somebody gonna someone's gonna pin him and try and take the hardcore title? Did no one try and run out after he got put to the, the table and pin him? Because he's been put through the table, as fuck all he's gonna do about it.
1: Oh, 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 God! Is um, so I don't. So for me, the way that the ending occurs is not. It's not original or even interesting anymore. It's a very uh, copy and paste ending for any D-Generation X match where they should lose, but they cheat and they steal the victory. Because it helps bring heat on them, and it's like, and it gets to a point. Where it's like, no, actually, it's just starting to get frustrating and boring because it's, um, it's basically uninspired, um, completely, uh, completely not sh- not surprising at all that the ref wakes up in time to see Bubba Ray's being put through a table because bullshit continues to reign supreme, um. A little bit disappointed that Gerald Briscoe has been, if if pa- yes, paranoid, but also relatively clever for the majority of the days so far in that he's hidden, he's made sure that he hasn't antagonized anyone, and yet he has a complete and utter idiot ball moment where he decides, oh, I'm going to make fun of the Dudley boys, and all it ends up doing is setting himself up for being put through a table, which, to be fair... If there's one thing that Gerald Briscoe is good at, it's being put through a table. But this is, this is not the time for it. The only thing I think that might have redeemed this match is if they had had it that the referee some earlier ran into in on Gerald Briscoe and then pinned him for the title um, before running off as hardcore champions. If they'd done that, I might have forgiven the whole thing. But because they did not, I am disappointed. And slightly underwhelmed about the match and i feel it's a it's a little bit of a disappointing come down from the fantastic match prior to this
0: yeah i feel a bit of it was good but you know again it's, it's clearly been leading up to something else later down the line which it's one of the matches from king of the ring that i mentioned it's overly complicated in the way it's been put together but I enjoy the way it's executed at the King of the Ring. So we'll see how it get how it goes when we get to it. But now, after a brief interlude to watch some creepy children singing in a what looks like Freddy Krueger's basement as we've already established. Uh, now we we come to the main event of the evening, you know, the Iron Man match, 60 minutes, only the second ever Iron Man match in WF history. for triple H for the WF title. We have a very good video package a package that when I watched years ago before I'd even seen this match was tricked me into thinking that Sean Michaels being the referee was a bigger part of the build than I actually was and not stayed for the go home raw and then Sean doesn't appear on Smackdown at all for this and then we have here where it's certainly made a big part of it because questions are being asked all through the show whether or not Sean will call it down the middle or not Sean comes out first obviously as the referee then we have Triple H come out he then tells the McMahons and that to go backstage because he's wanting to prove that he is that good and he wants to prove that he can get down on his own. So, Which I think is a smart decision because I'd rather the last few minutes be probably McMahons and Agnes than 60 minutes worse. And then they, it's almost like they build that situation for The Rock finally coming out because it's one of the few previews where The Rock got an actual pre-match promo for the for Horry's match, which is rare in this time period. So The Rock comes out as a champion I think Kim won it backwards was the first time he won the title as a face, which is interesting. So here we go. I'll tell you, I was very excited to see this because I'd seen the Sean Michaels Bret Hart match for the first time a year or so ago. Or I reviewed it for Scotland and Bulls Island podcast. No, I don't I wouldn't class it as one of my favorite of all time. I can see what others like about it. I can see what some people don't like about that match. But overall, I really enjoyed the Iron match more than I thought I would between Bret and Sean. And I'd never seen this match before watching it for this review, so I was very interested to see how I would compare this match to that one.
1: See, I actually have it that I'm probably the almost the complete opposite to you in that I've watched quite a few Iron Man matches, and I'm a huge fan of it as a concept. Um, I have watched this several times previously, so I kind of had an idea of what to expect, but I'd never watched it to the degree of focus that I was for this review. Um, when I watched Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels, I could again, see what they were trying to do. Um, I feel that some of the decision making they had was questionable because they started off so slow with such a lot of dragging that it becomes very difficult for them to claw it back. Um, and it, it's very difficult to start the momentum from a very stopped position. The, near the end, it starts getting better and you start to forget about the early parts of it. But I almost feel to some degrees that the match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels would have been better as just a 40-minute battle with one fall as opposed to a 60-minute um and change mat uh iron man match because it's kind of like watching a movie where the first act is pretty boring and then the second and third act kind of make up for it and that's the issue that i think occurs with bret hart and Shawn michaels uh my favorite iron man match is brock lesnar versus kurt angle um and i can watch that so many fucking times. I, re- I watched it recently again and it still holds up. So before this, I'm thinking to myself, I love Iron Man matches. And I think that these two, if I remember correctly, did very well. Um, it's just very fascinating that the two athletes most suited for it in Michaels and Bret Hart, um, had a controversial match. Whereas this features two men who most fans wouldn't expect to last even half an hour, which funny enough, Jerry Lauder then brings up trying to be smart by saying "Oh, the longest match The Rock has ever had was 30 minutes and Jared goes, yeah in July 1998 and it was against Triple H. So I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this match, I have to admit.
0: Yeah. I, I'll, really, I'll give you my full-on thoughts about the match to, as we get towards the end of it. Oh, uh, some police going by. They're like someone doesn't like the show. Goes bare heart Iron Man match. Wrestling <laughs> police are coming here. Uh, I don't even know if people could even hear, hear that on mind. But the thing with Daryl Lawler, I think he he does come off. He does actually say smarter things, than he's, he usually says that during this match. He's like, "I'm seeing that bit of rock is accurate," but then I think getting showing his bias at the heel here by willingly not mentioning that's also the longest triple H to had because. Obviously, he backs the heels. And DR asked him, Well, you've been in six to matches in your career. And he's like, Yeah, like you, you need to conserve your energy in the opening, even the opening half hour or even the opening, even after 45 minutes, and you should still have some energy left. And there's a point where The Rock's like fighting against Triple H, you know, trying to get the upper hand. And he says, Oh, The Rock, even this, these first five minutes, he's can he's taking up too much energy because his ego won't allow him to have Triple H get the upper hand even for a second. So there's actually some good stuff from Jerry because. Truthfully, as a, a territory wrestler in Memphis, he probably would have wrestled the sale of, you know, the sixty minute draws or having to draw a match for a very long time. So of course Jerry, Jerry would come in on So it's nice to get some actual wrestling insight from Joe Lawler. And I'm not saying I'm I have not watched many Iron Man matches. I have just the fact that nowadays a lot of Iron Man matches they tend to do the thirty minute thing because you can do a lot of the same stuff in half the time and still keep the crowd invested. But I will say that that match with Brock Lesnar and Grangle is also a stellar fucking Iron Man match. Also, a recent example of how you, well you can do an, an Iron Man match as in 6 mx is Joyce Alexander v TJP. On Impact,
1: yes, 100%, 100% agree. And it was actually one I was going to mention I'd forgotten about. I, I'm just going to say it straight up. I think you're completely right. That is a, another Iron Man match that I could watch multiple times and still enjoy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and like even the idea of like no just the Iron match, but the fact that the idea of doing multi-moment draw, I think AW has reintroduced that concept with the Brett danielson he the 6 minute draw where they can still get the current invested. And I think what this match has going for over the Sean Shawn, uh, Brett match was the fact that though they were really just at the start of their feud, Sean and Brett, because obviously Sean was challenging Brett because he won the Rumble, whereas this is coming towards the end of a long as he explained in, in the past multi-year feud almost at this point, they've been feud on and on since 1980s. To, so it's, it comes at the end of a few. The fans are invested in the two of these characters. And also the fact, obviously, you can see, I understand why people, why they didn't do like any falls toward, till over time for Sean v Brett. But I still think that even if you had them be one one and one towards the end, you could still have a the same goal. Whereas this match says, how do we set ourselves apart? We'll have, not just have falls, we'll have lots of them. Because... The final score is 6-5, so there's 11 falls in this match. I think what happens here is the crowd popping for the falls is what keeps the crowd invested, which you wouldn't expect from a 2000s crowd because you'd actually expect this crowd to have even, an even shorter attention span than the crowd that watched the Sean-Brett match. But I think the fact that it was something of like the Rock catching a surprise and uh, fall off of the Rock bottom or having to close his way back when he gets in a fall, like, okay, now he's only one behind, that gets the crowd invested. What Triple H getting like, oh, boo, now Triple H is one ahead, boo him. Um, that gets the crowd going. And what's interesting here is that they imply that it's not going to be in overtime. They imply that if it went to tie, the Rock would actually retain. And so Gerald Oller then makes the point that, well, now Triple H has to get two falls for every one that the Rock gets because ending a tie will benefit the Rock, whereas Triple H has to win this match more than the Rock does.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure if I remember that during the build-up when the match was originally announced, I'm I'm almost 100% certain that Triple H specifically says there will be no overtime. When it ends, it ends. And either I am champion or you keep the title. Um, which is a very interesting decision to make and is almost very babyface of... Mm-hmm triple h to do but i think it also gives that little bit of extra edge of like that someone has to, like triple h has to win um or the rock has to survive or whatever and i think these the storytelling of this match is a very underrated element of it and i'll explain why i think that when you're watching the match it can be very easy to just assume oh it's a couple of falls here and there as and when etc but in actual fact the match you could be breaking it up into three acts similar to, to you would with a movie uh, this is pretty much an action movie with three acts where the first four uh, the first third of the match has The Rock go ahead with just one fall because they're both still relatively fresh, so they can get away with it. And The Rock gives you a little bit of hope as the champion and the hero by going one nil ahead. Then you have it that the next 20 minutes, the um, the second third, is where Triple H actually begins to take advantage and ends up grabbing free falls um, to go 3-1 ahead. And you can see the difference between the pedigree and the rock bottom especially at this time because the rock can hit the rock bottom and you'll get the pin, but Triple H can hit the pedigree and it has everlasting effects. You're not going to get over it as quickly, which is why, whereas the rock could get 1-0 up out of the rock bottom and then couldn't get another pin straight away. Triple H could take advantage of the pedigree and get two falls to instantly change the complexion of the match because of the damage you get when you get hit in the head. Then you have the final third where you've got it by this point that Triple H is 3-1 up, but you're going to start getting a sudden quick turnaround of falls because now you've got the fatigue. You've got the damage settling in. So the moves that wouldn't have made an impact early on in the match are suddenly even more impactful. You only have to look at the DDT as an example where in the first 20 minutes, if The Rock hit the DDT, he may have gotten a two count. By the time it gets to the final third, due to the fatigue factor, if he hits the DDT, he gets a point. And that's the contrast that occurs. And I find that a very fascinating story to watch throughout. And I think that's where these two really play to their strengths of the build up um and utilising the timing and the crowd investment and I would almost go so far as to say controversially I think they did a better job with the Iron Man match than Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart did. They utilised the timing and the pacing and the strengths of the gimmick much better. And that made this an engrossing match to watch where pff, I just thought it was fantastic. Legitimately thought it was fantastic. I loved all 60 minutes of it.
0: I think, like you mentioned, like the Rock getting the, the fall after the Rock fall onto the first volley. Like, no matter what point in the match, if they hit one of their finishes, they technically get fall, which, again, helps to protect their finishes because in a normal match, they would have won if they'd hit their finisher. So why shouldn't it happen in this match? And then... Yeah, triple H. I I'm surprised that most of these came only one fall by D well, only a couple of falls by DQ and one by count out. I would have thought there would have be been more of those kind of things, but most of these falls came by pinfall. Uh Jenna Triple H hits the peggy to tie it up and then it goes was two to one after what the only guy is one of the worst inside cradles I've ever seen in my entirely. And then even guys goes to one up because of a bloody pile driver which I didn't expect to get pulled out. What I like about this match is they do mention the idea of like, these guys have gone longer than 30 minutes, and looking at the two of them, uh, they're more like built muscle-wise than Sean and Brett Ward. These guys are more of being agile or technical, and you'd think those two are more suited to uh, a match than Rock and Triple H, but these guys kind of... Like, that's why these guys kind of surprise you with how well they, they, they operate in this kind of match, and they almost have more to prove, and the fact that they said, oh, they've only wrestled so long as like 30 minutes. Once they mention that now that they're officially past the minutes, they're officially in their longest match ever, that's when they, you properly start to see them selling the exhaustion that they're feeling and like they don't always immediately care, like you know capitalise on covers. Like Oller keeps saying to guys that whenever they get a pinfall, say, okay, now pin him again, you can pin him again, get another fall, go two, go up two falls because there's no recipe, go get him again, but they can't do that because they're so exhausted mm-hmm. by this point. The fact that the Rock gets a fall because he gets smashed with a chair by Triple H, who then pins the Rock immediately to then keep the advantage, does remind me of that match we mentioned with Brock and Kirk, as Brock does a similar thing there. But it also mm-hmm. reminded me of an underrated match that I love, which is a two three fall match between Brian and Sheamus, where Brian gets DQ in the first fall to endure Sheamus, but then immediately yep. locks in as a submission. Uh, Sheamus is too beaten up, he passes out, so Brian immediately ties up. And also at the time, Brian immediately points to his head, like, smart like wrestler, pointed head.
1: That's absolutely very true. And I think it's an element that, whilst I don't think it's overused in Iron Man matches, but it's definitely one of the f- the few strengths of an Iron Man match that a heel can utilise. Like when Pack and Kenny Omega had an Iron Man match, I'm pretty sure I remember that Pac used the chair very sim- similarly to lose a fall, Uh, In order to damage Kenny Omega. And that is where it becomes. Brilliant. I think because. It instantly creates the pressure. And the odds against the hero. And gives the audience a reason. To hate the heel more than they probably already did. And it builds. It creates. The groundwork upon which. This story. can This match can unfold on. And it's an. Underappreciated element that is very very beneficial to such a match and i i was almost i had to admit i was i by the time it gets to the la- the last two minutes and you've got it that the rock has hit the people's elbow and he ties up five all and the mcmahon's have come down and sean michaels has already had a couple of like pushing matches with triple h and by this point this is the equivalent of a action movie, as I said, because they have built this and built this and built this to the point that it's like a powder keg ready to explode. And that powder keg is the last two minutes of this match where the, it is, you are almost out of breath watching because of how much is occurring. You have the McMahon's getting involved. You have the X getting involved. You have Michael's knocked over. You have the rock battle, you have Triple H. And then you suddenly have three girls up on a fucking Titantron, uh, doing like really creepy talking and who else would come out but i'm sure one of your favorites at some point would you like to tell everyone who comes out my friends
0: i have not done giving some methods about some of this match but i'll say just sort of saying that i do also always appreciate that Gerald lobson doesn't say that he likes the rock even when the even if the rock's a face or a heel because there's a point where it's like six minutes left the rock is still two down two falls and he's saying hey, the rock, oh come on rock, you gotta get back in the ring if you want to win this you gotta get back in the ring then they do this bot which leads to the count out which gets rock down five to four where rock, Triple H wants to hit a pedigree on the rock this is after triple h has been out to the outside and nearly murdered a poor cameraman but he it's a he goes at the rock bottom on the rock on the table rock hits a pedigree on the table which doesn't break which i think makes the bump even worse mm. and then Sean with one of the fastest counters i've ever seen probably because he realizes they're running out of time uh also triple H's got his fifth and final his fifth fall by just choking out the rock which by that point again makes sense because it's one of the few times that the armory has actually went down for the fucking three nearly i think uh rock gets at people's elbow to finally score it up sean by this point weirdly hasn't been as much of a distraction as i was worried he would be he has actually called up the amount of anything he's gotten triple h's face more than the rocks which is interesting and then yeah mcmahon's are coming in uh sean's on the outside doing shoving with triple eight with shane and Vince. And then goes to get up in the apron, gets knocked off, and briefly gets knocked down. And then, yes, the wee children like happening, and like, they're like, "What the hell is going on?" But the fans are going mental, they're throwing drinks at the ring because also they're angry over the rock getting attacked. They think all oh, the rocks going to get screwed after this long minute. And then, I don't know about you, but the fucking network edited and chopped up and fucked up fucked, uh, <laughs> this big reveal to no end. Even I think in later issues they'll double over the the Kid Rock theme, even though I think least three themes of this period. I think the Kid Rock one's the worst one of the three, in my opinion. But out comes the re-debut. We haven't seen him since the Go Home SmackDown before and forgiven. We just said, "No, nah, I don't want to wrestle this casket match tonight. I'm off. I'm my a groin's torn. I'm going through a divorce. I want to go home." <laughs> uh, and then it goes home. We're like, "I really like more bikes." Now it's time for me to go back to the WWF. And out comes the Undertaker. The fact that the, the fact that he almost looks unrecognizable from when you first seen him, uh, from when we seen him last. So the fact that Jr. is so brilliant, it's the Undertaker. If I was if I was a fan today, and I thought that's the Undertaker, and then the Undertaker go from Dark Overlord to Biker Man, but he comes in, he beat everybody. up, doesn't even take his coat off, so he won't feel the benefit when he goes outside. And I was I was dreading this this point here because I thought, oh, this makes Undertaker look an idiot. But when we actually get into it, it makes Sean look like an idiot, not the Undertaker, because Sean... Uh, should have already DQ'd Triple H because of Shane and that pulling him out of the ring because mm-hmm. clearly that's an interference on Triple H's behalf because uh, obviously Sean knows about Triple H's affiliation with the McMahon's but no, he gets up sees the chokeslam Triple H wants a don't Tombstone Triple H Tombstone Triple H, the timer's already expired calls for the bell and then says the winner of the fall by DQ and therefore going up one, winning the match your new WWF champion, Triple H, more things are being thrown at the ring. Undertaker looks turns back to the ring like, you what? And then proceeds to try and chase chase Sean Michaels up the ramp. Well, I like the fact that the preview quickly ends after this, so they don't loom on it too much, because obviously they want you to tune into Raw tomorrow night. But I think if you loomed on it any further and JR and King talked about it more, then you'd be more confused about what happened. And weirdly, when they talk about it on Raw, when more more uh the more Gr uh, and King talk about it, King actually makes a lot of sense and says that, I think Shawn Michaels inadvertently screwed the rock. Like uh, King is actually on a rock scene and says that Shawn Michaels did a bad job when they talk about it on Raw.
1: I do think to some degree that um, it, having, I do question how DX and the Man's can interfere without being disqualified. Um, so that is a little bit frustrating for me. Um, I think the timing is really impressive actually the fact that they were able to get it that the choke slam occurs because there's a choke slam from the untail that causes disqualification i know a lot of people always go oh the tombstone happened afterwards it uh, after the buzzer it doesn't matter the choke slam happened 3 seconds prior to the buzzer going out so to me that makes sense and it's it's a it's a frustrating screw job finish however I will say that the timing of the uh of the ending and the fact that the rock got dis- uh disqualified but not triple h um it's absolute. i think the rest of the match is excellent it is too good a match to be ruined by a couple of seconds that plays into it um and the pacing i think is definitely where the strength of it comes from in that it is close to non-stop but never burning out and it builds quite well now i have heard that supposedly the two of them practiced the match quite a lot there's even clips of the two supposedly practicing in the ring earlier on in the day now i know a lot of wrestlers normally wouldn't do that um however i think for the fact that these two were in uncharted territories and the expectation probably was huge and everyone was thinking oh they're gonna lose and it's gonna it's gonna just be an absolute cluster they they deserve tremendous respect for the amount of work they put into it because i think i would go so far as to say apart from the royal rumble um in terms of like the street fight this is the best wwf title match of the year 2000 so far
0: and that is indeed high praise (laughs) high praise Uh, yeah this finish didn't actually annoy me as much as I thought it would I mean because for the most part he did do it on his own and when he was doing it on his own he was dominant over the rock and a rock really proved how good of an underdog he can be by fighting back against the odds and everything like that and it further motivates him to get the title back you know Whole thing of like this was this feud was brought up when people complained about Sasha and Charlotte swapping the women's title back in 2016. But we were like, yeah, with the Rock and Triple H or Mankind, the Rock can swap the title back and forth. It's all point of it's proving they're as good as the other because the other at any other at any point in time can take the title from the other. And like these are that down in your mind thinking like Triple H from part did prove he was that damn good, but would he have fully proven it in those last few minutes had the McMahon's not gotten involved? Because before then, the Rock was the one who was on top. Uh, it kind of goes to show why the McMahon probably came out because he probably thought that Triple H was going to lose, which is why they came out in the first place. Mm. And it did feel like, you know, I th- like I said to the well, last time Sean was here, to set something between him and Rob, they never fully capitalized on. There are points in Matt Garfield, like, were they hoping that Sean could come back for something with Triple H? Because that's what it really felt like at points.
1: Well, interestingly, I think I remember reading that the initial thoughts for. Um, wrestlemania 17 um, was Shawn michaels versus triple h mm-hmm. um and in fact that's why we will probably notice it when we get closer to the time but the Shawn michaels that uh, basically came to uh work and i think i read he fell asleep from all the drugs he had taken and they just went no we're sending you home it we're not taking a chance and that's why Triple H ended up battling The Undertaker instead at WrestleMania 17 because they needed a replacement. Um, the, it wouldn't surprise me if this was supposed to lay the groundwork for that so that Triple H mm-hmm. had a huge match at WrestleMania 17. I f- think it's almost for the better that it didn't happen because mm-hmm. Shawn Michaels was not in the right place at the time in order to do the work he could have done. And I, I much prefer that it, they waited Um a couple of years until he was in his best place, and end up doing it at Summer 2003, if I remember correctly. Or uh, two, two. That was it. Summer 2002. Yeah, and it is fucking classic without question.
0: Yeah. So I, mean, yeah. I think the, the thing with Triple H, I heard rumors at the time that he was annoyed he wasn't in the main event. I mean, x Seven because he'd been in the main event the year prior. So they did it a main event as match for him, and when they couldn't get it, so they thought, well, even though the streak was nothing like. What's, what, well, what else is bigger than the title than fighting The Undertaker at WrestleMania when the two hadn't really had much of a proper feud by that point? Mm. And I know the story you're talking about because Jericho talks about it, but that same Raw where he showed up and passed it in Vince's office and it, uh, basically a low point for well, Sean's, like lowest point. That's what it helped him get clean because even Triple H, his best I was like, I can't defend you anymore. Because well, that same Raw, that's where Jericho did the whole dressed up as Doine to attack Rico. And apparently he said in his second book that his face Sean walked by and went, hey man, did they make you the new doink? And after three times of eventually try, of trying to explain him, he's not doink, he's basically like, I'm not fucking doink. And he goes, wow, you're rude. They never should have made you doink. And he <laughs> fucked it <up. laughs> And it wouldn't have surprised me if the match at May 87, if it did happen with Mick, was, was going to be a one-off, because like, all I've heard, the main rumours of SummerSlam was too, that Sean, even after that match, that he won against Triple H, wasn't convinced of it coming back full-time. And the only reason he did it with Triple H was he he wanted to do it with somebody he could trust because he wasn't quite sure of himself because Sean Magos actually had a match in his training school, which he declared his official retirement match. So as far as Sean knows at this point, he's done.
1: Yeah. I think I even remember hearing the discussion about him having done a match um, at his training school. And I think... It, it would have been heartbreaking to some degrees, I think, if the last um, match he had in the WWE had been barely able to walk, um, dropping the title uh, to Steve Austin and leaving underneath a cloud, whereas he ends up being able to come back in almost... Uh, go out on his own terms and be able to choose when he goes out, which was a case of when his son was getting to a point, I think it was his son, where he wanted to watch him grow up. And that to me is definitely a worthwhile decision and much better ending than the original one that everyone thought he had.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Before we go into our final thoughts and eventual rating for the pay as a whole, are you looking forward to having the Undertaker back on? Cause the point that you've been on before even before you uh my permanent co-host the undertaker had already gone and to be fair he wasn't doing much when he was around so are you looking forward to you know american badass taker
1: it's interesting for me because when i was watching wwf originally this was my first introduction to the undertaker i'd never watched him before i'd had never seen him in a match. I could not tell you what his style was. couldn't even tell you what his music was like. Um, and when he showed up, um, he is <laughs> the American badass. In, as far as I knew, that was the only real Undertaker there was. It wasn't until I actually looked into it properly and saw, oh, actually, um, he used to be son of Satan, not sons of anarchy. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, it's quite... Bemusing and mad to see. I am definitely curious to see how he does compared to um, it, it does now, but I, I'm i not entirely looking forward to it because one thing I do not remember from him is brilliant wrestling matches, and that was when watching as a child when I couldn't really critique wrestling properly. Now that I can critique wrestling properly, I get the feeling he's going to end up being like the equivalent of sit, sitting through a colonoscopy.
0: <laughs> I all I've heard about American Badass Taker is that like the first year or so a lot of people didn't like him because he had put a bit of weight on and then there was a feud with DP in 2001 and his uh, DP and a few others weren't maybe put over as they should be by The Undertaker but for me the best period of him as a biker is 2002 short-haired big evil heel Undertaker going on about a boy and uh, winning the Undisputed title by giving him to- Hulk Hogan one of the worst choke slams pre-Goldberg in Saudi Arabia and so that Taker I really love as a biker uh, and then my first introduction to evil zombie taker was Mania 20 return where I wasn't probably paying attention to his entrance and just about shot myself when I heard Paul Veras going oh yeah <laughs> Like, I got, like, a chill went up my spine. I thought, oh, what the hell is that? I got a bit scared. I had to brace myself whenever I watched that tape back, knowing (laughs) that that thing was killed. That's how scared I got from that. So, you know, if the matches are shit, at least it's something extra for us to take the piss out of going forward, and that's always a plus. But, Sam, you didn't make a conclusion, so maybe in under a thousand words, (laughs) try and sum up your... uh, your thoughts about this this, this pay per view overall, and your overall rating and what you would recommend?
1: Okay, yeah. Um. So. Um. The some of the positives. Um. I think the opening match got the crowd hyped. It was it was fun to watch. Uh, I think the European title match was really fast was fast paced and um, uh, respectable. Big Show's revenge on Shane and the wiping out of Boss Man and TNA was great. The crowd are 100% behind him. Um, it's really good, like, um, crowd investment. Um, the negatives in comparison to those is that the booking of the opening match and the ring psychology, I think, are a little bit backwards, uh, with little opportunity for the heels to get heat. Uh, I felt the triple threat match was barely appreciated by the crowd. Shame, beating Big Show was majorly anticlimactic. I think the tables matches, unfortunately, some of the WWE's more disappointing habits on display, which is shenanigans, interruptions, unclean finish, and DX going over undeservedly. But then there's also the positive of the fact that the submission match I think is awesome, great ring psychology, engrossing to watch, and a fascinating story to build upon. um, the main event as i've already said i think is probably the second best wwe title match of the year so far second only to the street fight which considering how amazing that street fight is i think is not is is not like it's not a bad thing um the efforts and the demonstrations from both men in rock and Triple rage <laughs> blew all expectations out of the water. Um, and they deserve fair credit for it. I think as a pay-per-view, I would say apart from the tables match, it's probably one of the best pay-per-views of the year, uh, in terms of the consistency and enjoyment factor, the heat from the crowd is fantastic. Um, it always feels like there's an energy around the place, and even though the fans themselves may not appreciate the matches as much as a modern-day audience were, would, the Triple Threat and the submission match, for instance, are both really good to watch if you enjoy good wrestling, uh, the submission match especially. I am very torn in that I think that if there are two matches that are definitely for recommendation, which you probably won't surprise you, but it depends on what you want. If you want wrestling, the submission matches on power. is definitely the best match on the card. Um, if you want sports entertainment and the best that the WWF attitude could bring you um, as a main event, the Iron Man match is fantastic and probably one of the best matches between triple h and the rock you're ever gonna see overall i would give this i would i'm gonna give this at least one thumbs up very close to two thumbs it depends on what people think about the tables match whether they think it where it's harmless for them or whether it's something that it frustrates them for me I'm very close to a second thumbs up, but I can't get over the my frustration of the tables match. But overall, I would recommend this pay-per-view highly as one of the best examples of what the WWF actually could bring you and also show how fucking good the WWE was in the year 2000 that they were hitting on all cylinders. This has a bit of everything and I would 100% recommend.
0: So maybe a one and a
1: half thumbs up. You're saying? I'm going to say one and half a chopped thumb.
0: I think I'd be the same rating for it because as much as I'd love to see which of the two Iron matches I preferred, I'm going to remain on the fence. Unfortunately, I know I'm sorry, but they're both good for their own reasons. You know, Sean and Brett are suited to an Iron match for their own reasons. It's the same; they don't have as sort of crowd as the Rock and Triple H But they both both matches told great stories throughout their matches. Uh, that and the submission match I said, as you said, would both be great matches to recommend. I think like to even to an extent I'd also recommend the opening six man tag to show one, how good they could these guys could do comedy wrestling to an extent or this time, and also how almost anybody in the attitude Era could get over just by listening to the pop or to cool and micishi. And even like the pop for mostly women, obviously for Asian Christians, despite the fact these guys were healed, they still got a massive like reaction. Even and then it's only a shame of that match the six man tag is the only match with a clean cut pure baby face win mm. throughout the whole show so that might take it down a little bit for some people I was a fan of the Tales match when they actually included tables and everything else I wasn't a fan of even the inclusion of Briscoe which I thought would be too much almost every segment involving Briscoe delivered uh, and I was, inter- I was very sports entertained by all the segments that he was involved in I kind of felt like something was missed. I could poke my finger, on what was really missed? Maybe it was a crowd investment in the triple threat match. Uh, so that really went down for me. It wasn't as great as I thought it would be, but still uh, decent as a match. The Shane Big Show match had enough shenanigans in it to make it more entertaining than it would have been without them. So, and I can easily debate the idea of Shane winning. I could, I wouldn't be offended if Big Show did go over. Out of all the heels winning, I think Triple H and Ben were well, the two I can defend because while the finish isn't as down as much as I thought it would be, the, uh, the weird thing of all the that are went, even though it doesn't get probably followed up and it really just carries you over to the next month, but really they should constantly be sitting of and knowing where they're going. It felt like they knew that eventually The Rock would get the belt back from Triple H and they were keeping this going. And now the Undertaker's in the mix, it gives you, you know, more positive thinking where is this going with him involved now? And Benoit like looked like a killer. Jericho looked so resilient and proved that he would never give up as a babyface because he would not tap. It. He would not give Benoit the satisfaction of tapping out. Uh, just a little heads up, like guys, uh, the next match, the follow-up Sam won't be here for it. So I'll just briefly mention this right now. The Rock has a very interesting Raw. I haven't seen all of it, but very much the story of Raw is rock hunting down the mcmahon's the rock goes on a bit of a rampage to hunting down members of McMahon, Helms' regime beating up shane locking x-box and road dog in the back of a truck beating up vince mcmahon throwing vince man to metal doors throwing him in his own limo saying get that piece of trash out of here vince then pokes his head out of his own limo to yell at the rock the rock casually as you like picks up a bin lid and smacks vince in the head with it <laughs> and then the drip the limo drives off <laughs> all the while Joe Briscoe's running around trying to warn members of the regime before they get attacked by, by what the rocks doing and then trying to get on the phone to Triple H and Stephanie <laughs> Waller, and I'm like, "Steph, can you hear me? Triple H Hello. That da, that da, da. damn I hate thing. he smashes his own phone.
1: <laughs> oh, that actually sounds like some fun. Of course I of course I'm gonna end up missing that, aren't I? So <laughs> <laughs> Oh Oh, yes. I'm sure Sam you won't miss day- me whilst I'm in America, will you? So,
0: yes, Sam to say the gal went off to America for, well, neglecting his responsibility. He, does, he clearly is not dedic- as dedicated as I am.
1: Absolutely so, not. I'm a part-timer. I'm Brock Lesnar, but um, uh, less suplexes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, and you're not paid nearly enough. Uh, but I do have a plan. This will go out very soon. Uh, you're probably hearing this by the weekend after we, we've recorded it. And I've got a special watch-along planned for this uh, next SmackDown. When I can arrange to have that watch-along recorded for the next SmackDown, uh, I don't know. But I have a plan of who is going to do that watch-along with me. So we will get at least the next episode of SmackDown as well while Sam's away. Everything after that is up in the air right now. So we'll see how it goes. But we're, you know, I'm sure Sam will not neglect these duties when he gets back from America. You know, when he comes back all tanned and everything, I'm sure he'll get right back to his fucking work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I won't, you know, eat out on the holiday for several months. That's completely out of character for me. Um, I'm not going to milk it like a Shawn Michaels injury in 97.
0: So. Anyway. <laughs> 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 But uh, in the meantime, while you're also away in America, people miss you and you know, they can't hear you on this podcast, they, they should go back and listen to your past episode that you've been on, whether they be this or the other things you've appeared on here and Rogue Opinions and our Gallagher and all good Android podcasts and sites, whether it be Anchor, Spotify, or iTunes, wherever you choose to get your podcast from. Uh, but where else could they find you or read about things that you're doing?
1: So I have recently been on Coached features where I not only did some uh, wrestling articles focusing on some of Cesaro's best matches, uh, especially when he was in the WWE. Um, I am hoping to eventually hear that he's going to be returning to wrestling because I-, I miss my big Swiss Superman. Um, I also ranked Brock Lesnar's Wrestlemania matches um, which uh, was not at all deteriorating that 25% of them was against Roman Reigns Uh, but most importantly the one that I was most fascinated of was that I love the character Batman he is probably my childhood hero I'm not gonna lie the recent movie with Robert Pattinson I fucking loved Mm. and the ending they felt was fascinating enough that it might actually inspire the villains in the sequel so i did an i have done an article looking into what characters i feel could possibly appear as the next villains depend uh as inspired by the ending of the batman so if you enjoyed the batman as much as i did then please go and read that i am also returning to wrestlejoy where i have several articles in the planning uh The reason why I very gladly mentioned um, the Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle, Ironman match is because I have a couple of articles looking back at the fantastically underrated feud between Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar in 2003. I think that their match at WrestleMania, their match at SummerSlam and their Ironman matches are free. Absolutely blockbusters. So there will be two articles related to those, which uh, the current working title is The Pain Hunts the Gold. Uh, if I come up with anything more imaginative, I'll let you know. But that is the one we're <laughs> going with currently. And i also be looking at some classic um, t- tournaments in celebration of the Owen Hart uh, Memorial Tournament that will be appearing at AEW Double or Nothing. Uh, late uh,
0: late in May Very good Very good, it's obviously a lot coming on Sam right there We also have some articles on our website Rogapines20 uh, at wordpress.com, I did one about late to Smack, the Smackdown series where I did an article months ago but it was about things I learned watching Smackdown 99 on a weekly basis, so when we get to the end of 2000 I'm sure I'll do another one of those I've been meaning for ages to do more articles so whenever I get my finger at Mars, I'll eventually I'll yeah, hopefully I have more things for you to read. Well, in the meantime, read whatever Sam's got going. I'm sure they're a bit as long as his notes for, for this show. <laughs> but in the podcasting realm, you can find on both on Rugged Pain's and our own feed on the same Android podcasting sites you can find Rugged Pains Scott and Paul's realm podcast, like I said, two and a half hours of us talking about the Royal Rumble 1993, which did kind of as a tribute to Scott Hall because he's only real one-on-one pay-per-view title match for the WF title. is on natural where he challenges Brett the Hitman Hart for the title. It's also the first Royal Rumble where the winner officially got a title shot at Wrestlemania. So it's a lot of historical context there. Also, we're, next coming we've got episodes about Frasier. Or we're in the final In Your House of, of 1996, In Your House It's Time, which features Bret Hart versus Sid. for uh, well, next episode after the Royal Rumble will be uh episode of our series, Eclectic Escapades. It's our series where we look at Fraser actors and the most prominent roles outside of the series of Frasier. Uh, the first episode we did was about uh, Kelsey Grammer and briefly David Pierce and uh, as Sage Joe, Bob and Cecil and The Simpsons but this next episode that's coming up will be another Kelsey Grammer episode as we look at Toy Story 2 and Kelsey Grammer's role as the prospector, a.k.a. Stinky Pete <laughs> and a good laugh was had by all recording that one. <laughs> we we're also a little drunk when we did that. <laughs> uh and Roger payne has got putting and Easy. We're taking a bit of a break but we'll be back with uh maybe I'll be looking at The Witcher for the first time, which to Carl's like love, because he loves that show. He's been telling me I should watch it. And following that I'm sure we'll have some Marvel related stuff because Doctor Strange is coming out soon. And at some point we are gonna do our official Marvel rankings of everything in the MCU right now. Maybe excluding the Netflix series or Agents of Shield because it's already going to be long enough a fucking list. So and maybe at one point we'll do an episode on midnight because we chose not to do the weekly because Carl wasn't as interested when looking at the trailers about doing a weekly thing for midnight. Maybe I can convince somebody to do an episode just on the six episodes of midnight because, God, episode five of midnight, I was in a glass case of emotion. <laughs> if you've seen the episode, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we did, we and, and Carl did do stuff on the Batman recently. We did stuff on Spider-Man No Way Home months later when Chris Carl couldn't get yet, so we had to wait for it to come out. So the last opinions after everybody else was minding Carl's about that movie. <laughs> so I've been waiting months to tell my thought about the movie. Uh, also, not doing much else on we, Morgan We did our 500 pod a while back, where we, me, Carl, and Nathan tried to pick out AW versus W V invasion, including some other companies. Not exactly what I think a lot of people would expect when you hear that title, let's just say. There's also stuff like Naked Men, Room 501, and all sorts of other stuff going on on the World Opinions feed. Uh, you can find me on Eat Sleep Supplies. we doing all sorts of stuff over there for them. There are feature shows, I'm on there every so often. There are yes, centre, which is like a news roundup, I'm on there every so often. I might have to host in the next episode because our, host, our usual host is going on holiday next week. I also do a show about Japanese wrestling over there called East Meets West, which I'm sure I'll be doing an episode about soon. And Middle of May to talk about wrestling Don Taku, it's coming up in a couple of days. And obviously, previewing the uh, Best of Super Junior, which is happening soon. And we're really looking forward to hearing the announcement of the lineup for that one, now that visas are being offered for international talent. So, you know, me and Sam could both use a holiday because we're both busy boys, but we do it for you. I'm a bit busier but you know it's not a competition
1: Scott does it for you and I I do it just because someone has to (laughs) if he didn't do it who would Mm. probably everyone else
0: (laughs) (laughs) so if you've learned three things from this show you'll learn that Steve Blackman is better than Kane, Carl doesn't really care, Sam doesn't really care about you and number one, don't fuck Gerald Briscoe
1: The man, the myth, the legend Gerald Briscoe As I lay me down to sleep Lay
0: me down I pray my soul is mine To keep my soul And never step outside this bed Never Into all the evil
1: Brown, 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 Brown. I'm an American badass, watch me kick You can roll with rock or porno flick, I'm like Amazing Chris